Welcome to the In Search For More podcast, where guests join me in my search for more, more from myself and more from life. I am your host, Ellie Nash. Welcome back to the In Search Of More podcast. In this episode, I sit down with Rabbi Simon Jacobson, a rabbi that I respect greatly and one that I've sat down with on many occasions, but this is the first one where we sat down together, just him and I, and discussed a topic that was very important to me, which is connecting mental health and Hasidic philosophy. Hasidic philosophy is a large body of work, a way of life that I was raised in. And while I have deep affinity and love and appreciation for everything it's taught me, a disconnect that sat with me for a very long time was was that I often heard that it has the answer to all questions. But one of the most important questions to me was, how do we solve mental health? Not only solve mental health, mental health is an area that's important for all of us to pay attention to, for it to be strong, for it to be fit. And this body of work that says it addresses it didn't seem to me to address it very well at all. And uh, Rabbi Simon agreed to sit down with me and be challenged by those questions, which I think would, would and could make many rabbis uncomfortable, but not Rabbi Simon. And he sat down and we had this conversation and I think from uh, the many conversations that I've hosted here, um, it received either the most or the second to most uh, questions during the interaction. It was an engaging conversation, somewhat lengthy conversation, but one that I feel is the beginning of something important that Rabbi Simon Jacobson and I and others hopefully will embark on, is to take this deep body of work and make it more relevant to the larger world. Thank you, and I'll see you on the other side. So before we uh, jump in, uh, this event was scheduled prior to uh, the catastrophe in Surfside, uh, but I figured it would uh, be appropriate to for Rabbi Simon to address that for a few minutes before we go into, it connects, it certainly connects because we're talking about uh, coping with struggle, mental health struggle, coping with struggle um, as it relates to Chassidus, but I thought it would be appropriate to address Surfside and what happened there, what's happening there actually on some level. And then we'll go into the uh, planned programming. Well, Ellie, it's good to be with you again. We've become uh, co-panelists and, and colleagues, uh, partners in uh, trying to bring some healing to this crazy world. And the Surfside, what can I say? I mean, first of all, I think it's uh, critical to start with just our prayers and hopes and, and hearts go out to, uh, firstly, those that are still under that rubble. We all really hope for a miracle that people will be discovered alive and intact. And we don't give up. We absolutely never give up. That's part of what human resilience and the human spirit is all about, especially in Judaism. We never give up throughout history. And also to the families who need a lot of strength nowadays. And I can't even imagine what it's like the hell they're going through. These unknowns every second, you know, it's, it's, it's like, and just the whole thing's such a nightmare. Uh, but at the same time, as much as we're pained and we're overwhelmed and we're all in it together, our hearts go out. The fact is, as I just mentioned, there's something about the human spirit, there's something about the divine spark within each one of us that will never let go. 
and never gives up hope. And we continue to search and we continue to do whatever it takes to preserve a life, a sacred life. And those, unfortunately, that have been taken from us, as tragic as it is, we also know we have to build and build something stronger and greater than ever. At this point, it's almost hard to imagine that, but that's our story. And it's really the story of not just survival, but uh, growth and thriving, even through the darkest moments. I mean, I, I grew up as, I, as Ellie, you did, you know, in America, free country. I only hear stories from my parents about what it was like in the former Soviet Union. And of course, people who went through the Holocaust, you know, the, again, horrors that are impossible to imagine. But I look at and I see that our history, with all the challenges and the difficulties, we're here. We're here to talk about it. We may be limping and we're wounded and we're hurt, but we never gave up. And we held on with faith and strength and inner belief, just like Viktor Frankl says, and it was confirmed in the Holocaust, man searched for meaning, developed a whole psychology that, not that we suffer less, but when there's meaning to life and there's deeper purpose, it just gives you a little more buffer, a little more strength to just get through anything because it's not meaningless. It's not your life is negligible and it's all over. There's always something deeper going on. And here we are. You know, who would have imagined two years ago 18 months ago, January 2020, everything was riding so nicely, smoothly. And then comes a pandemic out of the blue. And then everything that followed that, each one knows in their own story, everyone's life story. And then, of course, the last few months, we've had these strange collapses in Miran, the tragedy, and then in Jerusalem. And uh, now this in Surfside, South Florida, a building out of the blue. So we get stronger together. And that's why I really appreciate what you're doing, Ellie, because it's about really communion and our connection synergy gives us strength. The fact of the matter, I'll just use an analogy from a medrash that says that one, one uh, strand of straw is very weak, but when you put many of them together, they become indestructible. There's something about the power of many, the power that we come together, a minion, a group, a, a, a community that each one on our own may not be that strong, but when we're together, there's some greater power, greater synergy that gives us the ability to overcome even the greatest challenges. You know, we're now also in the beginning of the three weeks, and I don't want to say how fitting because we always look for good news, but this is these three weeks are the traditional saddest time in the Jewish calendar. Now, almost 2,000 years ago, the Romans destroyed the second temple and many other sad events happened in this period. And it really represents the sadness and any of this, any dissonance and disparity and disconnect in life, psychological, emotional. And of course, on the 17th, this past Sunday, the 17th of Tammuz, which is the beginning of this three week period, which concludes with the saddest day, the ninth above. What, what is it all about? The crumbling of walls, breaching of the walls around Jerusalem the crumbling and the destruction of the temple. And yet we're here to talk about it and we become stronger through these difficulties. That life breaks people, but we get stronger in the broken places. And that's really the theme of these three weeks.
So it's not just about negativity. It's showing that we can get stronger even when there's a break or there's a rift or a rupture in our lives in one way or the other. And that's our message. We don't have answers. The mystery of life and death is something that's unfathomable. But our answer is that we become stronger people and more commitment to love and more commitment to harmony and connection. We don't, we're not going to allow that tragedy to define us and suffering to determine our destiny. Our destiny is one of greater love and greater connection. Sometimes it's very difficult, but that's why we're here. And I feel humbled and honored to be with you, Ellie, and be able to connect with all the people that have joined and those that are beyond. You know, hopefully people will listen to this and we could all get stronger in this process. So yes, uh, Surfside is now so-called ground zero. Um, and uh, we hope it will never have to happen ever again, anything like this. And we need to get stronger in the process. And that's what we're here to do. You said something about, um, you know, building hope and staying positive and everything else. So a, a friend, a uh, close friend of my wife and I, Ezzy Wasserman and his wife, Hannah, um, her parents yeah. are probably interrupted. I was talking to Ezzy the other day and, um, you know, just discussing, you know, what's going on and how the family's holding up. And he mentioned how they're trying to keep as much hope as possible and, you know, affirmations that they're going to be found alive, they're going to be found alive, et cetera. And uh, I asked him the question, I said, is hope the, like, is hope the best thing? Like, is that, like, I don't know, I was curious. Is hope the, the, the best feeling right now? And um, he said, that's the Jewish way. The Jewish way is clear, is that we maintain, we maintain hope throughout. Where my question was coming from is, I, I was wondering whether it's almost a second law. Someone is sitting there dealing with the pain and the unknown and the confusion, but still holding on to some sort of hope. And then, God forbid, the hope doesn't materialize the way someone wants. There's a second calamity versus, I'm thinking worst case scenario and something positive and the, the good news comes out. Then what do they say? One good thing about being a pessimist is either you're right or you're pleasantly surprised. So A, is hope the Jewish way? Is that the, well, he's, he said it was a Jewish way. You seem to suggest that. Where does that come from and, what, and, and why? Well, look, remember, hope is not some childish fantasy of escapism where you just deny the realities on the ground. It's saying, essentially, that even though so-called statistically or naturally this doesn't look good, but I am not going to allow myself to resign and give up because of statistics. If the Jewish people, and he's 100% right, went by statistics and by people's predictions, they would have long disappeared. There's something, I don't want to, it's super rational. I can't really put my finger in it. You know what it is like? You're a parent, I'm a parent. When you fight for your child and the doctors say, you know what? Give up, nothing's going to happen here, God forbid. Or when I hear about a mother who adamantly and stubbornly says, I'm going to connect with my autistic child, even though doctors say there's no connection. So it's not called being nuts or crazy. And the child remains autistic, but I've seen stories where a mother found a connection. There's something about the superhuman uh, power of will 
that can break through even impossible scenarios. So it's not just about figuring out like, you know, that's an investment, let's swallow our losses and let's move on, you know. It's about the belief in the ultimate goodness of life, the belief that we can achieve things that sometimes don't make any sense. You know, it's the, the Wright brothers, 150 right. years ago, decided a crazy thing. They're going to have a flying ship. Imagine someone came to you, Ellie, or anyone. I want an investment of $1,000, $500, $100. We're going to have a flying ship, several tons. It's going to fly in the sky. They'd say, you're crazy. But they had this, whatever, where it was coming from, I'm not sure. And they did it. And I think it's really a testimony to an unbelievable element inside of us that we should not just define ourselves by the so-called natural, logical structures, because there's a lot more to life than just what makes sense. Now, that doesn't mean we aren't prudent. Obviously, you know, we lock our doors if they, if, because there may be criminals, and we have to do whatever it takes to address the real issues. But I think it's more than just believing that there may be someone that will survive this uh, terrible collapse, but also that we are not going to become losers and we're not failures. And even if it doesn't work out, you know, it reminds me, I remember when Mrs. Waxman in Israel, when her son was captured by the PLO, by terrorists, and they were negotiating with Israel. Israel, of course, doesn't negotiate with terrorists. They found out where he was. The whole Israel was praying with Mrs. Waxman at the Kotel at the Western Wall. You know, it was a big thing, if you may remember. It was a big, big thing. And they came a minute late. They came in a minute late, they shot him. So then one of the journalists, I don't even know how they can do that, you know, one of these abrasive journalists says to Mrs. Waxman, so where were, what happened with all your prayers? And she answered calmly with composure, she just lost her son. She said, we prayed, God listened to our prayers and God responded and his response was no. That's such a powerful statement. Remember, this wasn't just a, a nice line or a bumper sticker. It's coming from the anguish of a mother because there's something about we believe in good no matter what, even when it doesn't always work out the way we planned it. It's just a connection to something and we will forge ahead. And of course, we pray and we want it to change. We want only good. We're not looking for these uh, difficult challenges. And I think your friend, as he said it right, that's, that's a Jewish way. Right. So if, if I'm understanding correctly, what you're saying is that the hope is not fantasy. The hope is maintaining positivity throughout and each step of the way, it never allows itself to get extinguished. So now I'm dealing with the absolute facts on the ground. So I stay hopeful that it remains positive. If that changes, then I still maintain that hope. So it's really about keeping yes. that positivity and the hope alive. And you know what? Situation. If a miracle happens, it will all obviously celebrate. But it's not like, you know, let's be honest, somebody that has, God forbid, a family member somewhere stuck there, by saying to them, you know what, just accept the possibility that they're, oh, they're gone. And if a miracle happens, you'll celebrate. You think that make them feel better? <laughs> it's, it's, it's. No, it wasn't, it wasn't about saying as much as, you know, there isn't much to do in, in such a situation. You send food and what are you going to do? No, no, it's true, but you know what? What I find tremendous is that human beings, no one is coming, the scientists aren't coming and say the odds after six days are almost zilch. And people are saying this is sacred ground. There are human beings, human lives here. 
uh, you know, hopefully, maybe there's a miracle, maybe there's some wormhole, something that somebody was saved there. But regardless, it's still sacred ground, and we and we value life. We don't just say, hey, you know what? Let's move on and let's turn this into a garbage dump or something. Right, it's very powerful. Okay. Yeah, I guess I remember, to, uh, go ahead. No, I was just thinking, it just came to mind. One of the worst possible things is when you read about how the Nazis, Yamach Shemam, they didn't even allow a burial. And they're, they're literally scattered throughout Europe, the ashes of, of the Jews that were murdered there. And it's sacred ground. To me, the whole thing is a sacred ground because life never dies. The bodies were taken. But the, 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 the remains remain sacred. And I don't know if you know this, but 24-7, the Chesed Shalemas people are there because in case anything is found, Jewish law is that, that life is sacred. And you immediately, even if a person is not alive anymore, you don't just say, okay, let, discard them. You need to treat them with a sanctity. It's an unbelievable message about how we value life and we value a, a human being's existence, even if once they're gone physically, they're not gone spiritually. I, I heard something else, and maybe this is connected, that in, in Judaism, one doesn't mourn until there is a body. Is that correct? Yeah. No, or, or it's been determined. For example, there may not be a body like God forbid, when they cremated Jews, so there were no bodies. But people knew that that person had died. You don't mourn until it's definite, 100% sure, which oh, one of the God. ways is to find a body or some remains. I mean, today, DNA is one of the ways. I remember by 9-11, there were people who, they, they were vaporized, God forbid, due to the fires and so on. And they never found any remains. The only way was DNA. Yeah, it's... If that, it's in so, some cases, not even DNA. Oh, yeah. so it's connected. It's connected to that idea of hope. We maintain that hope throughout remember anything you and i and every human being has done good deeds do never die in some way they manifest especially today in science we know that matter turns into energy nothing disappears you burn a piece of wood it doesn't disappear the wood is no longer in the shape of wood but it's turned into right. energy into heat so there's always a different form yeah okay i think it'll connect um nicely to our to our next conversation so I mean, we've spoken a lot about mental health and we've touched on these, these topics a little bit, but I wanted to get a little, I wanted to get deeper into practically what it means. Some of these things we hear about chassidus, for example, with Tanya, when we're told that the Alter Rebbe, who was someone who people came to to bring all of their troubles, whether it was spiritual, physical, material, um, family stuff, and he eventually said, listen, I can't talk to everyone. I'm going to write a book and it's going to have all the answers within. So included in that should be mental health. Uh, you shared with me uh, several months ago a, um, an online talk you gave explaining, I think it was a Sikh of the Rebbe Rashab, uh, regarding uh, what you interpreted in it as, I believe, sexual abuse, right? Pagam Habris, Brisa as someone who's sexually abused and the healing is through, according to the, I don't wanna misquote it, misquote you, but it, the healing comes through Hasidus. You explained, uh, to, in, in a nutshell, it was a sikh of the Rabbi Shab talking about um, a Pasuk in Padr Shalom in, in, in Tehillim about 
Shalach Yad Bishlem of Chilo Brisei, and he explains that as Pegam Habris, which you interpreted as someone who's sexually someone who is sexually abused, and being that sexual abuse affects the core of a person, which that point resonated deeply with me. So when you said that at the beginning, like <laughs> you you hit the problem, you hit you you defined the problem perfectly. You diagnosed it exactly. Sexual abuse hits to the core of a person. So I was like, okay, so that intrigued me. Pulls pulled me in. What's the solution? And I'm listening in the solution chassidus. Okay, it sounds nice. What do I do practically? When I had sexual abuse, I sat with a therapist and I did EMDR. What are we What are we talking about chassidus? When people are struggling with surfside or with other issues, how are we telling them chassidus? What does that mean practically? Okay, excellent question. I just I just um, want to correct things for the record. The Rebbe Rashab's talk, which was delivered actually the 21st of Kislev in the year Tafresh Ayin Gimel, which would mean um, basically 1912, the end of 1912. It, I, I applied it also to sexual abuse, but what he's actually talking there is about sexual appetites and sexual um, temptations and people sometimes abusing themselves sexually and the sense of uh, the, the sexual drive. So though he doesn't use that word, of course, in English, he speaks in Yiddish, but he's talking about in generally the powerful seductive power of sexual sexuality, which can also be applied another, to sexual- Another one of my favorite topics. <laughs> <laughs> Pornography, as you Yeah. Um, topics, not habits anymore. Thank God, thank God, yeah. So, so when you say it resonated with you, to me, that's a very strong validation because you're not coming from a point of view, oh, it's a nice idea. You're coming from the fire and experiencing. So I just wanted to qualify and make sure that that's clear. Right. So he talks in general about the power of chilol brise literally means essentially violating or defiling your sexuality. It could be self-defilement through right. people pleasuring themselves or it can be defiled through another. And uh, so just wanted to, that's clear, yeah. But this, but this, the point is the same. So your question is excellent, and let me respond in a very direct and 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 candid way, which I think touches upon two points: what is sexuality, and for that matter, since we're talking about mental health and mental illness and so on, even though I'm not going to equate sexuality with mental illness because it's not necessarily the same and synonymous. But I think it all goes under the same rubric, as I'll explain in a moment. And what is chassidus? Which I think people really have no idea what chassidus is, even those of us that have learned chassidus. And I speak for myself. I grew up in a chassidic world. I grew up studying chassidus in yeshiva. It's only later when I began to realize its true power and potency, as you said. The Alter Rebbe says there's the answers in Tanya. The way we learned Tanya was a very, a very, very scholarly work very profound. And yes, there's a lot of depth in it, psychological depth, but you didn't see it, as you said, can you equate that with different types of psychological therapy or 12 steps? You know, you see it more as a, as lumbus, a scholarship. And it's only through my own efforts and through my own experience that I came to discover that, no, we, we, that we were not taught what the essence of Hasidus is. So let me put it into my simple English. And this is how I understand it. And why I think Hasidus is the best kept secret. And should we be able to open up its true messages and its true power, I think it can be revolutionary. 
But that's a strong statement. This Let me make a back. strong statement. <laughs> so I'm going to back, have to back it up now, right? Of course. <laughs> yeah, I can't just, can just end here and say that's a great statement. Okay. So let's go back to what you said, which you touched upon, which is the key to it all. The core you, the core person. See, most of us, um, let's put it this way. We have two dimensions to our lives. We'll call it the surface level, which is the things we do. We go through the motions, we eat, we drink, we sleep, we interact, we love each other, we bicker. You know, the whole surface level of life. Then there's a whole other dimension of what's going on beneath the surface. We'll call it under the dashboard. The things that are not visible to the eye and that are not even necessarily visible to your own eye. Can we use the word subconscious? I was about to say, psychology calls it subconscious. If you don't mind, I'm going to use the word superconscious. Because sub sounds like, you know, a sub base, like a subterranean basement. And right. superconscious is actually higher than consciousness, not right. lower than consciousness. But it's the same idea. Yes, correct. So it's our conscious lives, and we'll call it subconscious, or I'll call it superconscious life. So, for example, if something happened to you as a child, when you're five years old, some trauma, and especially if it was sustained trauma, you know, we're not talking about a quick thing that happened and, and you, got, you got over with, something that seriously affected the person, the child may not even remember consciously years later, but the impact will be quite deep and quite lasting. For example, people go out and they date. That's the first place where the superconscious becomes revealed. Because when you're doing business, you can, I don't want to say fake it, but you can get by, you can manage, you know how to maneuver. And some people are excellent maneuverers. But when you suddenly your heart has to get involved, you fall in love, at trust issues, vulnerability. Immediately, if there was a trauma in your personal life, it's going to affect how you trust. So there's a whole other dimension to us. That's the inner workings of who we are. The thing is, nobody can go there. Like, you know, even surgery, physical surgery, you can at least open up the your body and do heart surgery or do lung surgery or, or do something else. But when it comes to the sub or superconscious, what do you do? You can't just open up someone's consciousness and go in and tinker with it. So you're dealing with an in the inner wiring of who we are. And when you're dealing with any form of vi violation, betrayal, especially sexual, because sexual touches the very inner core of who we are. So what do you do? You know, so on one hand, you could argue, okay, too bad. Damaged goods, just like somebody, God forbid, lost an arm. That's it. No, that's where Hasidus comes in. Hasidus, in my own simple English, is essentially tools that are able to dig into the superconscious of the soul and access deeper resources that proceed and are deeper than where the hurt took place. So for example, if a person gets burned, if it's a deep burn, the only way to heal is you have to go to a place that's beyond the burn. The same thing here. Hasidus is able to dissect and somewhat release energy from that superconscious place that can address superconscious issues. So conscious can only deal with conscious things. If something happened on a conscious level, let's say somebody insulted you today, and you know, so then you deal with it in a very superficial level. A Band-Aid is enough, let's put it that way. But once something has so-called tinker or tampered with your inner workings, you need to have something that goes into those inner workings. And that's the power of Hasidus is able to, it, it understands more than that. It's like going into the DNA of your soul. What the Alter Rebbe, the author of Tanya, was brilliant at 
And besides being a great scholar and a holy man and a mystic and a sage, was also his understanding of human nature, which is what he writes. After seeing so many people, he says, I want to put it into a book based on my experience. It's not just a book. He makes it clear. It's because we know each other. We know each other intimately. Like the ultimate mentor, the ultimate soul doctor. So what he did in Tanya, in, yes, albeit in the language of Talmudic and mystical language, that's not that easy to understand, but in it lies essentially what makes you tick. How can you go into that part of your soul where there may have been some hurt or abuse or violation, again, either self-inflicted or inflicted by another, and so-called corrected from within? And that's what the Rebbe Rashab in that talk he's talking about, that it's about that Hasidus is not just reading a book about mystical ideas about the divine light or about symptom and concealment. It's really about a very deep spiritual experience. And when you have that deep spiritual experience, it has that ability to do what we call today therapy and others. And I, again, if this was turned into a modality, which it is not yet, into a formula that can be actually be implemented in, in, in real interventions and in real therapeutic environments, I, that's why I say I have no question that it could revolutionize the whole process. And by the way, it's not a contradiction to what's already out there. You can work, and, and it's not about it's competition, it's all complementing each other, whatever we have out there, it's, we all, everybody, I mean, I was speaking to a psychologist just a few weeks ago, I mean, this is a talks I have, and I shared with him some of this, and he said to me, really, you have a map of the superconscious? I said, there's a map, there's an actual map, and that was like, he blew him away, because he says, we don't have a map, we feel it out, you know, we try this, we try that, nobody's seen something. And what is that map, according to Chassidus? Well, the map is that there is a map of the conscious. There's a map of the superconscious. And I was going to lay it out and as we talk, but I can say it right now, briefly, that, that there's just like this DNA and there's the human genome, they're mapping the human genome. The map of the spiritual genome is, I'm going to use a little Kabbalistic term, but then I'll explain, that essentially the conscious faculties break into 10. Three cognitive, three emotional, and, and, and for behavioral, okay? Cognitive, that's conscious. The superconscious breaks into, has two levels. One we'll call a transcendent superconscious state that is not accessible directly, but you can somewhat connect with it. And then there's a super superconscious that is beyond any conscious experience. There you have to find new ways to, to be able to reach there. And they actually have names. I can give you the name. What are the Kabbalistic terms? I'm sure we've heard it from Chassidus, but yeah. what are... Well, the Kabbalistic terms for the, for the, th the first three, the conscious is Chabad, Chagas Nihi, which is an acronym for the intellect, for the cognitive, Chachma Binadat, which is the three cognitive faculties, Chesed Gvurat Teferis are the three emotional, primary emotional faculties, and then there's Netzach Yisrael Malchus, the four beha emotional behavioral faculties. For the superconscious, we call it Keser, referred to as the crown. And that breaks into a level called Atik and Arich. One is super conscious, one is super, super conscious. And they associate sometimes with, um, you know, the expression, the five dimensions of the soul. So you have Nefesh, Ruach, Neshama, Chaye, Yechida. So Nefesh, Ruach, Neshama is biological or behavioral, emotional, and cognitive in that order. Chaye is like Arich, the lower level of Keser, the, the super conscious. 
And uh, Yechida, the very core essence of who we are, is uh, Atik, or the higher level of Kes. But obviously these words are just right. cryptic so, words. Oh, so, so we'll, we'll get to it, because I want to unpack it a little bit. But the absolutely. you're saying is that Hasidus speaks to this map. Absolutely. And its, and its goal is to reach into the deepest parts of the recesses of our soul. So, as we know, if a person is healthy and well, you don't need necessarily to dig deeper. Everything is working. But if there's some type of hurt, you need to go deeper into the immune system to access deeper strengths of healing. That's how it is. And the same thing, that's what Hasidus does. It's essentially, soul, uh, call it spiritual surgery, whole soul surgery. But not surgery, obviously, with the blood or uh, scalpels, but rather a deep introspective soul searching and accessing deeper strengths. So, so let's let's bring this into language that I understand from from my experiences. So, absolutely. Yeah, I want to I want to get me. my I want to get my head around it. So, for me. Let's let's define trauma. There are many different definitions, but one that I like is trauma is not what happens to us. It's not the event that happened. The event that happened. Trauma is what happens within us because of that event, right? That's why it's not important to remember trauma. The trauma is what happens to us as a result of a certain event. And what I found in my experience, like I've spoken a lot about sexual abuse, and I've heard people say to me a few times things like oh, I never experienced sexual abuse. I don't know what could have possibly gone wrong. Or yeah, you went through sexual abuse. So that's some, somehow uh, uniquely um, challenging. And I think it's true and it's not true. What I, mean, what I mean is like this, is ultimately what I found from my own experience is that there's really one kind of abuse, right? It's abusing who we believe ourselves. Let's call it spiritual abuse for lack of a better word. That there's one kind of abuse. When someone is physically abused, I haven't met anyone who was physically abused one time who's sustained real trauma. At one time, their father got upset or uh, whatever, something, a teacher hit them and they, they've, it, it deeply affected them to their core. With those kind of experiences, when you hear someone really suffered from physical abuse and it really destroyed who they are as people, it really touched them on a very deep level, it was traumatic, you're talking sustained physical abuse. Sexual abuse, something that I believe is unique, is if for whatever reason, and I don't think it could be understood on a purely physical level, I think it can only be understood on a, on, a, on a spiritual level, is that when it touches, it only needs to touch once. Obviously, sustained sexual abuse is even more, but you'll have people who've had wholesome lives, good lives, and then one time, one event, a, a rape or something like that, and it derails something that you know, yeah. being mugged on the street wouldn't, wouldn't destroy in the same way. Are they traumatic? Sure, it's traumatic, but someone mugged on the street and someone raped on the street is a completely different experience because it touches someone very deeply. With that, I found, in terms of the healing, that talk therapy can never address these things in a real meaningful way. They can help, they can take out some of the, especially if it's difficult to talk about and being able to talk, talk about it with someone who's understanding and kind and compassionate and maybe has been through similar experiences, it can ease some of the immediate pain, but to really get in there, there are other modalities. So I don't want to go through, through all of them, but just for an example of two that I've worked with, uh, one is EMDR and another is breathwork, right? And two of those are modalities that for whatever reason are able to, and Describe when it's done, EMDR. you feel it. 
Describe EMDR. Yeah, so EMDR stands for Eye Movement Desensitization and Reprocessing. It's interesting. I've, I've had very positive experience on it. I know others have had very positive experience on it, and many others have said they felt they felt absolutely nothing. The concept in a nutshell, and I, I may screw it up a little bit in the same way I um, didn't capture the sicha completely. So I share from my experience, if there's a skilled therapist on here who has more, feel, feel free to type in and I'll correct. I'll correct it. But the idea is to, it, we learn in three different ways, either through seeing, hearing, or touching. So EMDR, even though it stands for eye movement, can actually be used visually, auditorily, or kinesthetically. So it's all three. And the idea, the concept is basically we have a right brain and a left brain. And during the course of sleep, we process our day's events. That's why you can go to sleep angry and you can wake up feeling okay about a situation. Because during the course of the day, the the two sides of the brain talk to each other. And you see this during a certain phase of sleep called REM. And during that phase, people's eyes are moving back and forth side to side. And what's happening when their eyes are moving back and forth side to side is the brain is actually doing that. That's why, you know, when there's a stroke on the right side of the brain, it affects the left when, when there's, you know, and vice versa. So it's to kind of trigger what the, the REM stage is to trigger that um, process, right? Really processing events. So for example, if someone had a disagreement with someone that they went to sleep very angry with, during the course of the night, that'll process and they'll wake up and feel a little bit more relaxed over that experience. A trauma is something that sleep has, it's almost was too powerful for the sleep to, to handle it within sleep. So EMDR, the science of it is to try to trigger that phase with the patient there. So what they'll do is, in my case, they'll take me back to a certain memory I'll be talking about it. And then in that moment, either lateral eye movement or listening to sounds or holding paddles that um, vibrate side to side. And the idea is to trigger while you're processing that memory to trigger that experience of the brain processing it. So it's obviously something that's happening on a deeper level, right? It's trying to trigger something, to trigger something deeper than in the conscious. And very often my experience with um, EMDR often has been that while I'm doing it, memories came up that I didn't have previously. It's almost like the body knows or the mind knows or whatever mem memories are stored. I think a lot of people believe it's actually stored in the body that the body knows we can release this now. It's safe to come out. So while I'm under these experiences, all of a sudden it's like, wow, I never remembered this. I never remembered that. And suddenly these things that are coming back for the first time are, are there and with a trained facilitator, you're able to, to process it. Breath work works very similar, similarly, in the sense, I, I don't have the whole explanation, but breath work is using different breathing patterns that uh, will take you to places that uh, probably mimic uh, deep psychedelic experiences, for example, where there's, for whatever it does, flushing the body with oxygen or something else, it's not using regular breathing patterns but using certain kinds of breathing patterns and you'll feel it, you'll feel it physically. We start to feel lightheaded, your arms will start, your fingers will start tingling, your face will uh, feel like you can't move it and suddenly things shift. And in those settings, having certain conversations with the trained facilitator can enable things to release, emotions to come up. They can be, they, I don't know, they, there could be crying, there could be laughing, there could be anger. It's yeah. deep emotional yeah. experiences. And I found that those things can release. So are you saying with chassidus, technically, because what we don't have clearly, or I haven't met, uh, is 
someone who's saying, hey, come to my office and we're going to do uh, EMDR, we're going to do, I don't know, we're going to do a little Kabbalah or Atik or whatever the, the name would be. <laughs> well, I, that's exactly what I'm saying. As a matter of fact, I appreciate that you spelled it out because I'm going to use your experience and what you just described to contextualize the Hasidic approach, if I may. Perfect. Okay. So we'll have a real example. So let me, let me spell it out this way. We all know what our faculties are like on a very revealed level. You know, you use your eyes to see, your ears to hear, your fingers to touch. We have taste, smell. We have you know, different experiences. But there's also what Hasidus calls the faculties that are concealed. Like vision does not begin in the eye. Vision begins in the brain, the neurons in the brain. And what Hasidus will teach you that the neurons in turn originate from the power of vision in the soul. Because remember, a body without a soul cannot see. You can have healthy eyes, but you don't have the power of vision. So the truth is the faculties that we're aware of are really very, let's call them the conscious faculties, are just the tip of the iceberg. Beneath those faculties, within them, lies deeper and deeper connections. Hasidus has an interesting analogy that two people who are blind, parents, will give birth to a child that can see, unless it's a genetic defect. Why? Because what's lacking by these blind people is not that they don't have the power to see, they don't have the vehicle, they don't have what's called the keli, the container. But the power of vision is completely intact within their soul. The soul was never damaged. The optic nerve could be damaged, or the very physical eye could be damaged. So let's now apply this to the rest of our faculties. All of our faculties, in other words, have their origins and their roots in a deeper spiritual place. Now, everything is going well. A person is healthy, and there's no abuse, no trauma. So fine, you can get by with just functioning. But when something was hurt on a deeper inner level, what Hasidus will say, let's go for a journey into the deeper part of the soul that corresponds and where we can do something and trigger. What you're describing to me is as consistent as it gets with Hasidus. The only thing is Hasidic masters have not yet turned it into a modality, but I could see it complementing in a very powerful way. Let me go even further. There's a concept called synesthesia, where people who actually, when they see a sight, they actually hear a sound. And when they hear a sound, they see a color. At, at Matan Torah, we're told that the Jews saw the, saw the sounds and they heard the sights because right. they went into a deeper spiritual, yes, you can call it a psychedelic experience without drugs, where they went into the place with the soul where the wires of sight and sound cross and really can, can, can uh, replace each other or even work together. So in other words, when you go into this deeper spiritual states, you actually go into a place that is not yet defined by the structures. So when there is trauma, whether whatever type of trauma, but a trauma where, and I'll, I'll define trauma now, we'll call it a form of, a trauma as a form of displacement, a form of, um, we call it exile, but displacement. For example, a child deserves love and we thrive on love. Nine months, we're inside our mother's womb. When we come out of the mother's womb, what's expected in a healthy home, parents that are unconditionally loving and nurturing the child. Love is attachment, healthy attachment. But if somewhere that love has been severed, either by a parent not being there, 
or by a parent hurting the child. Critique, even on, on basic levels. I'm not even talking now sexual right. or deeper abuse. But let's, and especially if there was some form of sexual abuse or another abuse that betrayed the child and the child now feels insecure, doesn't feel nurtured, what happens? Deep inside the child, in the inner workings of his soul, there's a certain, like it's a fish that's not in water anymore. And it needs, a flower needs water. What happens is the spirit gets, starts withering. Now, if you want to heal, you can't just do something external. Like you said, just verbal or, or, or dialogue or just is not enough because you right. need to go back into that place of connection. Wherever that detachment took place, that dissonance that took place, you need to connect something on a very profound level. And that is where Hasidus says, okay, we need to travel into inner dimensions of the soul. And it uses methods, methods that I could share that I know. Sometimes it's a methodology can call, first of all, just deep spiritual, deep spiritual work of really understanding what makes you tick and working on yourself on a very profound level in the deeper superconscious state. Song is a powerful one. You mentioned breath. Breath, if you look in the Torah, right in the beginning, what is a soul? Breath. Neshama. And Shema in Hebrew are the same words. God breathed the divine breath into the piece of clay, into a piece of earth, and that made a human life. So breath to me, like he says in Tanya chapter 2, comes from the innermost parts of divine and also the innermost parts of who we are. That's why I have no, to me it's not at all surprised how breath can enter into those inner parts of who we are and rewire things, trigger things, as you as you explained. It. Yeah. No, I've I've experienced it. I've what what I've experienced. My my experience on breath work, for example, is a very um, it's it's not a logical experience. So what the way they describe it is that breath is energy, right? And as you're flooding the body with oxygen, it's going to hit up against those experiences that are blocking it from flowing through you. So and and and, and let me add, and, and what it does, it release it. And what Chassidus adds to that, that breath isn't just energy, it's divine energy, where, which is essentially the force that gives you life and alignment. And if there's a disalignment or some form of trauma that disconnected things, it was a rupture, something broke, that by accessing that divine energy, which, which is basically going back to the source, is realigning a broken machine and fixing it from within. That would be, you know, which is very interesting. It very much associated, you're talking about Surfside. We're talking about Surfside. It's a very fascinating um, manuscript from the Rebbe where he talks about the concept of a building falling in. Spiritually, any structure that falls is like compares to the spiritual world of Tohu, which is a world of Chaos. where there was the shattering of the containers. Trauma is the shattering of something within us internally. And Tikkun is the repair of that. But the only way to do that is through inner work. You can't just do it with a Band-Aid or with a painkiller. Okay, so for breath work, right. It would, I actually once tried reading a, a book on breath work and he had techniques and everything else and it didn't work very well. I, you know, I, I followed some of these things and I've done a lot of breathing to the point that I, I, I had a coach at one point just for, for breath work and we met twice a week and, you know, he taught me different modalities and it's it's been my experience and it was it wasn't only my experience i did classes with 30 or 40 people 
who are all doing a certain breathing technique. And within 15, 20 minutes, one person is angry. <laughs> another person can't stop laughing. Another person's in deep sadness because it hits something inside and it starts, it starts releasing stuff. So I, I get that completely from, from that world. And it seems to make a lot of sense to you. My question is, uh, you're almost saying like, there's this modality, you know, Oregon recently uh, passed a law and it's here that there's, they approve a, some sort of psilocybin therapy. Okay. Some sort of psychedelic therapy, but meaning it's technically legal, but there's actually no one approved for it. So over the next couple of years, I have to figure out who can be trained and who can facilitate it and, uh, and everything else and, and everything else. So it almost sounds like what you're saying is we're in that, we're in that phase, like you have this approved, you have this approved therapy, but we don't have any uh, trained facilitators that we can go to, unless there are some that I don't, that I don't know of, but no one's ever, and I, I search aggressively and I speak to a lot of people, no one's ever told me, here's a person I can um, have a session on healing based on chassidus. So what, practically, what are we doing? Is it, well, I, well, here is the frustration. You know, my hope is that maybe conversation like we're having now will actually spawn a project and maybe a think tank or something that can develop this because with Hasidus what you have is tremendous uh, forces and powers and methods but it's never been turned into the modalities that need to be used in real clinical and therapeutic environments but I'll give you an example uh, let me talk about Yom Kippur for example Yom Kippur is considered to be a day of essence a day when you can connect to the super, super conscious. That fifth dimension I spoke about before, five dimensions, that's in the super, super conscious. Yom Kippur is a day where the goal is, and let's take away the traditional elements that really, frankly, for most people, obfuscate what Yom Kippur really is about. The idea of Yom Kippur is to, so to speak, suspend as much as possible our material involvement. We don't eat, we don't drink, we don't have intimacy. We try to go as deep as we can and within our souls. And it's a day, a white, a day of white. We wear white because it's the purest state. We want to go to that inner child, that place, that essential place that was prior to any type of damage or hurt or trauma. Now, where did Yom Kippur come from? It came from the fact that the Jewish people built a golden calf. That was a rupture. That was a trauma. They disconnected themselves from their source of life, God, basically betraying God, infidelity. They created another God, adultery. And Moses goes up on the mountain and says to God, I want to access the most innermost forces within you because I want forgiveness. I want healing. But we all know that healing has to come from a deeper place. It can't just be, oh, bygones are bygones. Let's move on. It has to come from the within the very core essence. So Yom Kippur is essentially traveling to the essential connection. It's like, to put it in very practical terms, husband and wife, they love each other. But then something happens. One of them betrays the other. And it's like devastating. And many people think, okay, it's all over. I cannot forgive. I cannot forget. And that's that. But when real therapy works well and they really love each other, they dig into a, dip, a deeper place. Not that they forget what happens. They right. dig into a deeper place and they access strengths they could never have accessed. And that's going into the very deeper superconscious forces. And then the love is far stronger. 
So to turn this into a modality is the challenge, Eli. I admit that. I don't. I cannot tell you anywhere you can go right now where a Hasidic practitioner can tell you, here's how we do it. I think what I'm sharing are key points, but it still has to be turned into an actionable plan and so on. And that is so, what's needed. Let, let, me ask a, let me ask a different question. Practically, what do you see? You're saying, okay, maybe a think tank could be formed. Um, what, what would it look like practically? What do you think? What, it, what would a session look like? I, like I've described what a session of breathwork may look like, either an individual session or a group session. What, what do you envision would be uh, what a session of um, healing done through Chassidus? And I do want to unpack what you really mean by, by uh, Chassidus being that map, et cetera. But what, what do you think of practically? Someone walks in, what's, that, what's happening in that session? Like learning a mimer? No, that may be part of it, but it's a lot more than that. Um, I would say that the most important part of it is really to, first of all, the, let's call it the practitioner, whoever is the mentor or the, what do we call it, the, the spirit soul doctor. The facilitator, the spirit, whatever. Yeah, yeah. Has to be able to connect with the person. There has to be trust. There has to be an element of openness. And that can take time to develop. But once you get to that place, what you really want is a person to feel comfortable to be able to explore deeper parts of their own soul. And that could be step by step. You know, I don't believe in an assault on the human psyche where you're just going to go into this deep surgery, a deep, it's about a process of slowly. Right, and that's connect. consistent with therapy as well. Right, of course. It's about going step by step deeper into yourself, into your behavioral, your emotional, your cognitive. And then slowly beginning to explore some of the superconscious. And you do that through different exercises. It can be a meditation on Moda'ani. You know, thank you for returning my soul. What do you think about in the morning when you say that? What is the soul? What does it mean to you? And so on. So there's a whole dimension of different experiences that you can actually bring Jewish exercises and perhaps in a way like it's never been done before. And, um, and, and as a result, and as a result um, whether it's through prayer, you know, I usually think of cognitive, emotional, and behavioral as in a spiritual spa, study, prayer, and action. Study is not just you're learning a mimer or you're learning a text. You're actually recalibrating and reconditioning your mind. That instead of, let's say, negative thoughts, you're thinking about your soul's purer place. Uh, emotional would be prayer where your emotions are being redirected and reconditioned toward positive emotions. And the same thing on the behavioral level, saying things like thank you, gratitude, charity. There are a lot of things that are, we take for granted. We just see them as mitzvahs and good deeds. Right. When in truth, they are truly healing agents that, that people appreciate today in many different ways. So now when you go deeper, the superconscious is where you're starting to access things that are not so conscious. Sometimes a song, a nigan, can trigger something from a deeper place, a deeper memory. It could be a positive one, it could be a negative one. And as you go along, there's actually in Hasidus different exercises that touch different parts of the soul. Like I mentioned, Yom Kippur is a very yechida, the, the fifth dimension. But before you get to that, there's the fourth dimension. There's Are different you suggesting that this is the primary purpose of Hasidus? That, is that what you're saying? Oh, well, you know, interesting, the Rebbe, in addressing this question, he writes, 
that, no, Hasidus didn't come to, to heal those that need healing. But Hasidus' power is essentially the power of the essence of your soul. And when you access the essence, it has the power to heal. So I would say Hasidus is not medicine, but it's the best medicine, right. if you know what I'm saying. Like, in other words, it's good for healthy people, and it's good to make it, and it's good to make healthy people healthier, and also help those that may need different things to correct or improve. So it's really a refinement process. And it comes down to even behavioral things. Yes, behaving like a mensch can be a major healing factor in this whole process. It's a many pieces that have to all be put together and create a regimen, literally like a diet. Things you eat, the, the nutrients, the exercises, and different so, behaviors. So maybe what you're saying is actually something as you're talking. You know, I spoke about breath work. I spoke about EMDR, but I've, I've also been in, in recovery from addiction uh, for a number of years. And maybe it's something that uh, looks more like that program, right? There, there you have the 12 steps, right? Which is a spiritual rubric, a spiritual framework. Uh, just, uh, I guess, uh, some housekeeping thing. So the chat section, as chats come in, as the chats come in, it kind of, someone mentioned something here, which I'll address until the rabbi comes back, that um, someone says that, you know, Rabbi Y.I. Jacobson, Simon's brother, has a, a great understanding of the limbic system that is where trauma gets stored and has a way of explaining it in acidic terminology. And I, I'm, I'm not speaking for right, Y.Y. Jacobson and how he arrived at it, but I often, like in my own experience, I often feel like I came upon something in uh, in the 12 steps or in breath work or in some other therapy, and then I found something that sounded similar in Chassidus and said, oh, look, here it is, Chassidus. But the original place that I found it often was Chassidus. It was nice that afterwards I found support for it within Chassidus, but when I read that the soul was implanted by breath, that didn't get me to take up a breathwork therapy class. When I took a breathwork therapy class and I happened to hear a rabbi mention that, oh, it's also consistent with uh, where the souls come from. And that's part of what I'm trying to get to with this conversation is that, yeah, there seems to oftentimes we find something that then has support within um, Judaism or within Chassidus, but I I myself have not found it as the, the place to find the original information, only to support the information I found out there that resonated. All right, so I, f I forget where we were when... Uh... I, I was laying out some of the things that the session would look like. Oh, right. So I was talking that as, as you're speaking, it almost sounds to me more like what a 12-step would look like, which is not, not just a session, right? You have the, the 12 steps, which is the spiritual principles, a spiritual framework, a spiritual um, rubric. And as a matter of fact, the 12 steps does have a specific solution. Whenever you say something, I'm trying to point it back to, to my experiences, right? To go back there. So I have a way of making, maybe making it more tangible, right? That I can, I can understand it, which is what we're trying to find. How is this actually, actually tangible? But the way you're describing it and fleshing it out, seems not like so much a breathwork class as much as more similar to the 12 steps. And I'll explain what I mean by that. So the 12 step itself reads, having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps. In effect saying that what is the purpose of the 12 steps? The result is a spiritual awakening, which is similar to what you're saying is to, to get back, to find that spirit and to wake it up. And when it's reawakened, a lot of good happens. Right, to get back to our essence, get back to our spirit, get back to who we are. But what I wanted to add, may I, may I interject? Go ahead. Yep. 
I wanted to add what Hasidus and Judaism in general has to offer. In addition, it's not just um, a healing program. It's a life program. It's about how to live a healthy life, which may even include how to build a relationship. Many people who are in trauma are very focused on their healing, but there's also a relationship they should perhaps be building, a home and a family. So it's really like a holistic approach that covers all the dimensions of life. And that's part of it as well. So in addition to the strong, deep healing work of reaching deeper levels of the soul and so on, it's also about building all the other things. Like, you know, it's important to ask what kind of relationship do you have with your siblings, with your friends? What kind of work are you doing? Are you being charitable? In other words, it's a very broad approach right. that would include the full lifestyle of a person. And that's a big part of it, as well as obviously this deep soul healing that we're talking about. Almost a distinction between, say, uh, going to a doctor or going to the gym. They're both focused on health, but one is focused on removing illness, and the other is saying, okay, how can you become the most fit, healthy person? And in the process, we're going to have to resolve the stuff that get in the way of that. Yeah, you know, look, it's like, you know, when you, when you go for sometimes for a, an x-ray, let's say an x-ray of the lungs. So they'll place the x-ray near a healthy template of a lung, because then you can compare the two. And by comparing the two, you can see where it needs repair. So what Hasidus offers is a template for the healthiest possible life, and not as a fantasy or a dream. It's giving you a picture that you're aspiring to. And now we look and we juxtapose your life over what could it be, what it is over what it could be, what's possible. And we look to fix and correct and improve on any level, starting from the behavioral, the emotional, the cognitive, but all the way into the superconscious and the super, superconscious. And it's, in a sense, that's the Toyu Tikkun model. Toyu is a world of chaos, trauma, dysfunctionality, fear, insecurities, and all that comes with that. Tikkun is a world where things are realigned, recalibrated, rebalanced, integrated. And it's not just words. You actually go into specifics. What is your chesed like? Your love. And you explore love. What is your gvura, your discipline, your restraint like? You know how to discipline. What is your compassion like? What is your determination like? I'm literally going through each one right. of the the spiritual building blocks of what makes you tick. And you look at where you are and where you could be, and you work toward that. One of your books is the, um, the, the Omer, right? That you have going through the 49 days. Right. Is that similar to what you're talking about here? Yes, absolutely. It's a piece of it. That goes through the seven emotions and the emotions as they are within the emotions. What is the love of your love, the compassion of your love, the discipline of your love, exactly. Right, interesting. So you're saying that less than looking at the dysfunction or the trauma or the problem, it's, okay, here's, here's a map of, the, of your potential. Here's a map of what could be. Let's find the areas that are lacking. And whether it's reached the point of trauma or problem or uh, illness, by making it optimal, right? Let's consider a scale of one to 10, right? Anything under five is considered illness. Anything over six is not considered illness anymore. But if it's not 10, then we know we have to work on that. And that's why it's kind of like a never-ending journey, right. nothing to do with the illness. But if it's addressed, then it'll automatically take care of the illness. That's what you're saying. 
Yeah. I'll, I'll even add a third step. I would say there's who you are as you were born, like freshly fallen snow, the pure you, the inner child you. There's what happened to you that caused maybe something to be un, dis, misaligned or distorted, some trauma. And there's how do we get back on course by accessing that inner force, those inner forces, and now digging deeper to be able to find that. Many ways when we say the word tshuva, which many people think is just repentance on a sin, I'll put it in, in psychological terms. Tshuva is returning to the essential you before it got distorted, before something took You use the term displacement before. Would, that, would the word alignment be the opposite Absolutely. Of Absolutely. Absolutely. Alignment, misalignment, displacement versus uh, balance. Right. Yeah, mis- exactly correct. So you're saying Chuba is realigning to who you are, who you are. The real healthy you. So this seems to, the, the real healthy us is we vary from person to person, right? Of course. But I mean, there having- are certain things. Listen, just like all of us, healthy lungs or a healthy heart are similar, but each of us have a different uh, particular composition. So there are general principles that are healthy for everyone, but you have to customize it to each person's individual needs and situation. Based on what you're saying, it sounds to me like Chassidus, which you, you, you said this earlier in passing, but maybe we'll drill down a little bit. I just want to make sure I understood it. Chassidus is less a intellectual exercise. Obviously, it's that because I can't do anything without understanding it than it is a meditative experience meditate emotional and deeply spiritual yeah but you're not studying chassidus you're experiencing chassidus absolutely absolutely so you're saying that you're saying that's what's missing in a lot of the way right saying maidani is one thing sitting there and meditating on it for 30 minutes on what it actually means and what the implications of it are or even for five minutes even for five minutes yeah it's a qualitative thing yeah absolutely or to bring the recovery style, right? What do they say in recovery? They say meetings of meetings are forums for working the steps. So what do meetings for a lot of people? The meetings become the lifeline of it, but actually the meetings are not the main purpose of it. The meetings are the support for the main purpose, which is the main purpose is the steps, right? There was the 12 steps and they said, how are we going to communicate this 12 steps in an effective way? And the most effective way to have a group of people who come together every so often, several times a week, once a day, a couple times a day, and discuss how they're applying the steps in their life. So a lot of people who've never been to a meeting may think that, okay, so I'm going to sit around and a bunch of people are going to tell me about their drinking experiences, let's say. And it's actually very rare to hear someone talk about a, a drinking or a slip with drinking or a relapse or an obsession. You'll hear some of it, and you'll hear of it, obviously, with the people who are, who are new. But most of what you hear, hear is someone talking about a disagreement with their wife the day before, or uh, a job they've uh, just applied to and they're waiting on the response. And then while they're waiting on the response, how suddenly they're applying principles that they've learned and heard to that experience. So this idea of um, from step three, which is giving up control to a higher power, understanding that there's a guide and a creator and a director to this orchestra, is saying, okay, here I am applying that. It's not theory. Here I am applying it to this job that I'm anxious whether I'll get or I won't get, or all sorts of decisions that can be uh, that can be coming up. And watching people live through that is the way we 
internalize it better than than any book. So, I mean, this is what you're suggesting. You're suggesting not only learning the content in a much different way, not in an intellectual way as much as in a experiential way, number one. And number two is some ways to reinforce and apply this on a regular basis. Yeah. I want to throw one more thing in, if I may. Okay. But I did capture it. Yeah. Some of it. Yes. I can't say exactly as I said it, but pretty much, yeah. Right. We need to say those details, but the way you're describing it is an experience and not... I always learned to say the way it was taught was logic, right? You have to understand A, B, C, memory and logic. And what you said is totally different. Chesidus is about godliness. Godliness is about the divine blueprint for life. Part of that blueprint includes intellect. Part of it sure. includes emotions. Part of it includes behavioral. And most part, and part of it includes superconscious or we call subconscious super and superconscious. The problem is that often you can learn Torah or Hasidus and you're just focusing purely as an intellectual experience. It's academic. Right. It needs to be complete. Let me tell you something. On the second day of Pesach, 1944, the Friedrich Rebbe, the previous Lubavitcher Rebbe, spoke and he said that in the year when Tanya was published, or right, right, right when the Tanya was beginning to be distributed, the Hasidim came to the Alter Rebbe and they said to him, we don't understand Tanya. And the Alter Rebbe responded, he said, because a half a thing can't be understood. What's the other half? You know what he said? Nigina, singing. Not just singing when you read Tanya. Song, it has to be experiential. What does song do when you hear a beautiful song? It's not intellectual. Correct. It touches you. It resonates. So he was saying that for Tanya to have its proper effect, you also have to have that ability, that resonating element. You know, when I read it the first time, I said, you know, no one ever told this to me. Right. So I that never, Tanya that... I heard that from you me, once before. I never heard it before. Yeah. Yeah. And the Alter Rebbe who says that you'll find all the answers, but you can't find it with half the story, half the formula. Where does it you say know, this? So, in the second day of Pesach, 1944. The Friedrich Rebbe said it. Yeah. Right. And, as, and so what I would think from that, turn that into a modality, we'd need some form of music therapy. Bring music and song into the picture. You know, deep songs, especially Hasidic songs, reach very deep into the soul. They, they evoke, they can trigger tremendous emotion and tremendous experiences from a very deep place, if done correctly. Again, yeah. not like a mechanical song, you just sing it and move on. Seeing it in that way. What's required, Ellie, is taking it seriously and looking at it as a very internalized, intimate experience. Intimate is the word I want to use because I want to go back to sexuality. The word in Hebrew for sexuality is das. Intimate, not just knowing something, but intimately, personally connecting with it. That is why when so sexuality has so much beautiful power, it can give birth. It's the essence of love two people becoming like one, like one flesh, but it could also, when it's abused or hurt or violated, can also create very deep damage. So intimacy, it's about experiencing intimacy with the Rebbe Rashab is saying, Chesidus is intimate experience of, of godliness, of the divine, which isn't just understanding something. It's understanding it in an intimate way. Now with that, I wanted to just, if you don't mind, I want to just, since we're ready. Yes. Yeah, we're there. Since we're going on a we're going on a journey here. Journey, yeah. Yeah. 
I want to share the following. And whenever I share this, people who've taken psychedelics think that I'm talking about a psychedelic experience, but it's a Hasidic experience. The interesting thing about, well, let's talk about the conscious and the superconscious. We spoke before that the conscious is on the surface level, what we are conscious of. The superconscious, we're not aware of. We only see its effects. You know, it's like, it's like a magnet behind the wall that's affecting you, but you can't see the magnet. You know, it causes metal to move, but you don't know where it's coming from. So there's something even more fascinating. How does the superconscious speak to the conscious? Can we create a bridge between the two? And here's what, this is some of the deepest discourses of Hasidus say the following, based of course on Kabbalah. They say the following. They say that, that the superconscious and the conscious have a thin membrane, like a, a very narrow channel that they speak to each other. And the way it's explained is that when you, for example, have an idea, like you know, say you're, you're, you're dealing with some dilemma, a personal dilemma, a dilemma at work, and you can't find a solution. You're racking your brain. And then suddenly, ah, the flash of an idea, you know that moment. It's called a flash, a spark. So Chesilis explains, that's Chochmah. Chochmah is like Koyachmah. Where, where did that come from? Where did that idea come from? And it explains, you don't know where it came from because it's coming, it's like a drop of water coming through a faucet that's connected to a reservoir, which is called the Koyachamaskil or Chochmah the superconscious intelligence, what some call the collective unconscious, and the, but it remains concealed. When a drop comes through, it's like the faucet, a drop of water, but we know that water is coming from a pipe, and that pipe is connecting to a reservoir. Consciously, you only feel a spark. Then you develop it, and that's called Bina, expounding on it, elaborating, fleshing it out. But the spark is the place where the superconscious meets the conscious. But let me take this a step further. It's not just a spark of intellect. You know what it is? It's a, you know, it's a flash of a higher awareness. It's like when a person has an epiphany, like and they say, oh, wow, you're standing in front of nature and you're in awe. You sense something that's beyond you. The mind really is not an intellectual machine. The mind is the capacity for a human being to imagine, to dream, to aspire to a world that's higher than your emotional subjective reality. So why? Because the mind is able to, in a very interesting way, access, not directly, but indirectly, the superconscious state. And when you have that, you have hope, and you have the ability to access new strengths that you may not think were possible. Well, we go back to before, when we spoke about hope and so on. So it's really where the conscious meets the superconscious, is the critical place where real healing can take place because a person who's been traumatized has to access the superconscious, right. but they have to bring it into their conscious lives. So here, this is something that I could tell you, we can speak for hours. This is where I would love to be able to have the opportunity where you bring together some of the best in the world of psychology, some of the best minds in the world of Hasidus, and you hammer this out where they cross-pollinate, talk about ideas, you know, flesh it out, stretch the ideas, and I think you can come away with unbelievable methods that can help us access that superconscious and bring it into our conscious lives. Because at the end of the day, healing has to happen on the conscious level as well. It can't right. just be in the superconscious. You, you have, you live, we live in this world.
Isn't so that pretty? We, isn't that quite fascinating? Maybe we can help facilitate some of those uh, yep. those conversations. Someone here mentioned that the word for that place in psychology is the preconscious. Okay, fine. Look, I find this fascinating. I really do, because because in Chassid it talks about it in detail. I, I only I only touch the tip of the iceberg. It touches in detail the different levels of how the superconscious moves. And interesting, you know, it says in Hemshech Samachvov, that's a classic uh, a series of discourses by the Rebbe Rashab as well, delivered in the year 1906. You know what he says there? He says there are two ways to access the superconscious methods. One is through exertion. When you, when you push yourself, you exert, like you have a dilemma and you're trying to break through. The exertion opens up new channels. And the second, he says, is Kabbalah soil. When you're totally committed to something, completely, you know, like a person, a soldier committed to the military, just absolute commitment, where there's no such thing as maybe optional, I must get it done. Like you're given marching orders, you must do it. And that too has a power it, to open up. Is there an optimal way between the two? Um, they, they really work with each other. Um, it's a, I think both methods should be used, and they probably both have an advantage over the other, and they also complement each other. Right. They can go listen, together. When you have that total commitment, remember, which is critical in healing, because if it's right. optional for you, then you know what? Today I go, tomorrow I don't. That total commitment causes you to exert yourself and work hard, because you're, you're invested. You know, it's not, a, it's not arbitrary. Yes. I think that... Um... You know, often I'll often get calls from people and asking about that, you know, the healing and uh, what I did specifically. So I said, well, I can, I can get into the details, right, or what I'm doing specifically. I get into the details, but the details aren't as important as the whatever it takes, right? The absolute commitment to, um, to, I'm, going to I'm going to heal. I think that's also, I was talking about this here, it's like what the... You're saying it differently, but I've often said that the demands of recovery are in some ways more demanding than the demands of a religious life. Because it wants all of you where religion doesn't, I felt didn't, I didn't in some I way, but you're saying, I, you're saying I, differently. I, I, I will correct you. No, the demands of religious life as we know it, if you really knew what religious life was, which was a deep spiritual life, not just going through uh, rituals and mechanics, I think then they are very similar because. A true religious life, a true spiritual life is constantly about growing, improving, refining. There's no such thing as just being in your religious comfort zone. And, you know, okay, we're going to do a Seder, we're going to do a Shabbos. It's a constant process of growth. There's an expression that the true righteous travelers don't have any peace, not in this world, not in the world to come, right. because they're always traveling. They're always restless. There's no such thing as, as a as uh, taking vacation, you know? Right. What was that? Yaakov was punished or something for um, wanting... Uh... Yeah, but the, the, but the point is that it should be a, a, a healthy restlessness. Right. You know, there's uh, that restlessness in, in the process of growth, of always seeking more. Understood. So Listen, let's, let's sum it up and get the questions. What you're saying is essentially, you agree with me. <laughs> what, what I mean you agree with me is that... The fact that I haven't found I, it. I also hope I've added something to it. No, I know, but what I'm saying, what I'm gonna, that in the sense that you're not saying, you're not saying to me, you haven't found it because you're not looking at it, because 
you're whatever, because your eyes aren't open, you're saying, we're actually only doing half the thing we're doing, we're teaching the intellectual part of this and we're not teaching the song. That's what just I mean. Like, just, like, just like people who, who are cultural or mechanical Jews are just doing the mechanical part and not doing the soulful part. Exactly. Right, meaning, uh, so when, when we tee up this conversation, right, your conclusion, uh, obviously, I mean, it's clear from your life and who you are, that your conclusion was going to be to this question of whether or not mental health can be found in Chassidus was the answer is yes. But it wasn't obvious how you would get there. And it surprised me, it surprised me as well. And I'm sure a lot of the people listening is that acknowledging, yeah, opening up a book, opening up a safer, and just learning Chassidus the way many of us were taught is not the experience that the Alter Rebbe spoke about when he spoke about Chassidus. Look, it they're holy a, words. They are holy words, so they could have an impact just by their power, but- I'm not discounting that, of course not. Yeah, but if you really want the impact, it has to be, like you said, with a song, with an internal experience. You it's know. like anything in life. Can you go to any teacher or master and they just tell you something and everything is solved? We right, 100%. To, I was thinking to... of like a, a chef, you know, he makes an amazing dish, but you end up getting it in styrofoam. <laughs> now, it's still a good piece of meat, but it's not the same. Like part of it is all of that experience of, there's everything there, that whole, there's the, the content, which is the food, there's the presentation, there's the delivery, there's a the service, there's all of that is an essential part so, of the so experience. You, so you, you can study your entire life about the superconscious, but if you don't apply it to your life or to any other life, it remains an abstract concept. Like, like just like a psychologist may know an idea, but he never applies it to life. You know, so what? Like a, it's just like a formula. Right. It's, it's, okay, so this is... Um, so you, what, what, what I meant by uh, you agree with me is that you agree with me on the issue, right? Meaning what I'm experiencing, you agree with, but you're actually putting a challenge forth to, is to yourself, to everyone, to the larger Hasidic community to say that it has to come out of the books and into actual experience. This, the Hasidus has to become an experience, it's fully felt. It reminds me of um, someone asked, uh, was it Rabbi Tversky? why he refers people to church basements when they need healing, when they're learning the 12 steps. He said, doesn't everything exist in Tanya and uh, Musser? Like, what are you sending people to there? He said, if you find me a book, I didn't realize how profound the statement was until this conversation, but he said, if you find me a group of people reading Tanya or Musser, like their life depends on it, I'll send them there. <laughs> but in the meantime, I only know 12, 12 step groups for that. But that's, exactly. that's what you're saying. Absolutely. You know, because unfortunately, and I don't like to be negative, but sometimes religion can actually be an obstacle, not because religion is, but because when people think, oh, I'll just eat a matzah, I'll keep Shabbos, I'll eat kosher, and all my problems are solved. And they don't internalize it. So it actually becomes a, almost like a, uh, like a religious addiction that blocks you from healing, because you're not really internalizing it. You think, I'll just automatically eat these magic pills and it will just solve all my problems. You know, I deal with this all the time. People who, let's say, have issues, husband and wife, and they said, you know what? We decided we're going to be more religious. I said, why don't you talk about talking to each other? What about communicating with each other, being nicer to each other? No, our mashpia, our teacher told us you should be more religious. So I'm not taking away. Everybody can be as religious as they like, but sometimes you think that's going to solve it without really the work. No, it talks, there's work needed. So yes, Judaism has great tools, but like many people keep Shabbos, but they're not Shabbos dick. You know how powerful of a healing 
agent of Shabbos, the idea that once a week you don't go to work and you need to be with your loved ones and there's no technology and there's no texting. You know how healing that could be if you did use it properly? But if it just becomes, okay, we eat the meal, we sing, we bicker, we argue the same chant, you know, becomes a mechanical thing, you're losing such an opportunity of a spiritual, a spiritual day that can so energize and reinvigorate your life. That's a perfect example. Shabbos is such a healing power in that sense. It's a time to be close. You light candles. It's intimate, warmth, but it's not always used that way. And people think, I, I did Shabbos. No, you didn't do Shabbos. You did the technical. You went through the, the mechanics. You went through the, by rote. You went through the motions, but you lost the whole spirit of it. There's a spirit involved. So I, I guess hearing you speak in this way, and it's interesting because although we've done a lot of these lives, something about the one-on-one -on -one, like allows me to understand, and maybe it's a topic also that allows me to understand uh, you better in your, your you better in your passion. So you almost like now I understand the Hasidus applied every week, the class that you do, because for you that's the exactly. I say that's a big focus for you. You can also sit there and say, "Hey, we'll all learn a sicha together." But it's like, okay, all in a sicha together, but that's not what I want to know. What I want to know is, practically speaking, people's everyday life's challenges, how can we get together to talk about um, how the books behind you can be applied to, to what's actually going on in people's lives? So if you were um, organizing a, uh, a high school for, uh, for you know, yeshiva students, um, People who grew up in Crown Heights, like us, not, not trying to outreach, not trying to make it cool. The kids are going to be there. The kids are going to be there anyway. How would you design the Hasidus program? Because what I'm hearing also is that some of the challenge may be that we're learning Hasidus the way we're learning Gemara, right? Gemara, you don't have to turn the music for, right? It's much more of an intellectual exercise. But then, you know, at the end of the day or in the morning, you flip open Samach Vav or something else or, you know, Hasidus, and reading it in that same way, you're missing the other half of it. So what would it look like practically if there's a teacher now who's teaching high school, what, what would you advise that, I don't know if the principal will go for it, but if he could, what would you advise him to do? Well, actually I've, I've gone through this exercise, have advised, I've even spoken to students and to schools. My advice is very straightforward. As soon as the youngest age possible, you don't even have to be a, a, a teenager. It's about spiritual education. It's about teaching the child, the boy or the girl, about their soul. In the morning, when you wake up, have them think about what makes you tick. Obviously, in a language fitting to each age accordingly. So I would not just sit. It's fine to learn Hasidus. There's always a need to learn some text. You learn the olive bays that way. You know, you learn the language. But you want also the music. It has to be a class where people, where the kids, whoever's attending feels, wow, I'm learning about myself. I'm learning how I work. You know, if I get angry, where's that coming from? If I have jealousy, if, I, if, I'm, if I'm bullying someone, I'm being bullied. You know, you start talk about the things that define who we are in a language that speaks to them. You find in the memoriam of Hasidus, in the discourses, the terms and the expressions, but always make sure it's personal. If it's not personal, they're going to learn that chassidus is like you said, Gemara or Shulchan Aruch. Like someone told me, I said, you learn chassidus? He says, yeah, 39 malachas and 10 spheres, you know, all in one sentence. <laughs> right. 
Okay, like a bunch of numbers. He's got numbers worked out. So yes, I would teach it in a very personalized way. Make sure the students apply it. Like for example, end of the week, you're going on Mitzrayim, like you're going out to speak to other Jews about Yiddishkeit. Take something we learned in Chassidus and learn how to communicate that. An insight into human nature. What is chesed? What is healthy love? What is not healthy love? I would take items, I would make everything relevant. The key operative word is relevant and applicable to your life. It's not that difficult to do, by the way. The problem is we gotten stuck in a rut of just doing it the same old way and not forcing the issue. I would make sure everybody knows what the Alter Rebbe said, that a nigan is half of Tanya. Not just the text, but the nigan. Do you hear the nigan? Do you hear the song of Tanya? Do you hear the song of Chassidus? And I would work very deliberately. You'd need to train teachers to think this way and to teach this way, but students would love it. They would, they would, they would look forward to this. Imagine a class where you're learning about yourself, what makes you tick, how you work. Now, of course, kids are kids. They're not necessarily all going to be that psychological and philosophical all the time. But you need to find intriguing and creative ways to do it. To make it and relevant. I mean, so that's your call to action for teachers, is how do you take this and make it actually relevant? And not relevant in the sense of, oh, you have to keep Shabbos, you have to learn more, but relevant in the sense of you're feeling this, you're going through that. This is how to do it. We we run an annual essay contest, applying chassidus to a practical issue in life. I'll give you an example. If I was the teacher, okay, this Friday is going to be coming Shabbos. I want you children to figure out a way, not just to keep Shabbos, but to be Shabbos. What are you going to do this Friday night on Shabbos? Not just light candles, go to shul, make kiddush, hear kiddush, sing shalom aleichem, eat challah, whatever. But and what gefilte fish, what meals, but what Shabbos Dik experience, you know? Now, many people say Advar Torah, they sing a song, all beautiful, but make that into an experience, a very deliberate experience. Now, I have to say this, Ellie, truth be told, there are many, many beautiful and great teachers and great parents that are doing parts of this. I'm not going to suggest that right. everyone is not. There are many warm, beautiful families educating and nurturing their families. But there's always, as they say, if good is good is better, not better. And there's plenty to still be desired that many who are not. So this right. needs a, yeah. I share everything from my experience. So at the end of the day, I, I went through the, I went through the ringer. I went through the system. I saw all of it. I heard all of it. You know, the most important lesson I got in this was, was from Rabbi Yaldaran. Rabbi Yaldaran was an English teacher in Chayve Terra. So he wasn't actually a Tanya teacher, but he taught me more than I, more than anyone else about Tanya. What happened? I got into a fight with the kid in class. Real Duran was teach, teaching math and writing and these other things. I had respect for him. He was a good teacher, but he wasn't actually a, a Hebrew teacher at the time. And when I got into a fight, I got a punishment to write Tanya or read Tanya by heart. And Yael Duran overheard this. And I heard him. I don't think he knows. Maybe, um, maybe he knows afterwards. I don't think he knew that I heard him, but he was in the office irate, so angry at this, at this teacher for giving me this class. And he's like, how dare you ruin his relationship with Tanya? Like, how can you ruin it in the sense that here he has a punishment that he has to go, he does something wrong and he's a punishment that he has to learn Tanya. You want to associate Tanya with a punishment? And I didn't understand what he was talking about, but I just saw that it was, he was so angry and it was important for him. He was yelling very loudly. And it was important for him that I have a positive relationship with Tanya. And that probably made more of an impact on me than any of the uh, Tanya lessons. 
that I uh, that that I had. So what I'm saying is from a hey, my personal experience in yeshiva, not to discount the many positive things that I got. It's been a great addition to, to my life, but. I speak to people all the time about the subject. As a matter of fact, uh, an hour before I had this call, I was speaking to someone who shared with me that he's been having intense suicidal thoughts and been going through a very difficult period, financial overwhelm, relationship issues, and everything else. And for the very first time in his life, he's experiencing those thoughts. And I'm wondering, you know, I'm sitting there an hour later, and we, we spoke through it. And at the end of the conversation, he was certainly much lighter. But I'm thinking that conversation, I. <laughs> I'm here. I'm, I'm I'm having a conversation an hour with Rory Jacobson about um, mental health challenges and Chassidus. Is there anything I can tell this guy that has any like anything to do with Chassidus that can apply to this? Or I'm talking to him more about all these other experiences, and that's that's where I'm coming from. I'm coming from the very many people yeah. I speak to on a regular basis who are struggling in very very deep and real ways, and uh, for one reason or another, I'm witness to that on a regular basis, and what I, I hear the terms i hear it then i i want it to be true you know i want it to be true i want there to be so, answers in this and that's where i'm coming from okay well let me say a few things about this i have a few good points to make i believe number one chassidus is not one-dimensional it's not just a thought or an idea in chassidus chassidus as i mentioned is an experience that's why we say there's terus chassidus the teachings of Chassidus. There's Minhage Chassidus, the customs. There's Nigune, Nigune Chassidim, the songs of Chassidus. There's the culture, there's the spirit. A real Chassidus environment, in the full sense of the word, is going to be a combination that stimulates all the senses our minds, our hearts, our behavior, our superconscious, our super superconscious, our senses. It's a full body, the full soulful experience. And I think when I speak to people, and I'm sharing the same with yourself, besides some ideas and thoughts, which are always valuable, we'll talk about that in a moment, it's also even the compassion you show, the care, the fact that you care, has a deep impact. There's a chesidish ruach, as they say, spirit, in a certain graciousness, a certain giving, a certain humility, a certain respect that you have a very special soul that you may not know of, but it's there. Don't ever give up on your soul. Now, I'm not suggesting, I unfortunately have dealt with real suicidal situations that all these words did not help. So I'm not being naive here and think you just say the right word and suddenly. But, but it's like the Rebbe would give the example of a helmet. When a soldier wears a helmet, it's not guarantee, but it definitely max, minimizes the chance of being hurt. So it's all about maximizing and minimizing risk and maximizing resources, you know, basically giving someone more art artillery in their arsenal. And I find that if you can serve as like, you know, like going into a mikvah to warm water, it's an environment that just a breeding ground for, for many, many of people who are dealing with these type of challenges are living in a very hostile environment. They see people who are very parasitical, narcissists and so on. Just giving them an environment that's beautiful, accepting, can have a deep impact. And again, I don't think there's one thing. There's no one magic pill. There's no one button. It's a, Chassidus is a fully fled, a full-bodied experience. You know, when I read, when I remember as a young child reading the Zechreinus, the memoirs of the Friedrich Rebbe, and he describes the city of Lubavitch. And the way he describes it was so idyllic. Lubavitch, a city of love a city that was completely saturated with love. Now, when I was young, 
I thought that's exactly what it was. You get older, you start wondering, was it perfect? Was it maybe there was something not? But still, the idea that you can have an environment, like I said, a newborn child in a healthy home is a beautiful, excuse me, a beautiful environment. So I think it's all about that. That's one thing. I want to add one more thing, if I may. I mean, unless you want to. No, you give me a lot to think about. You change my perspective in many ways. It's not like Hasidus. I've always heard of it as when I heard it, it's like Hasidus. What is it? It's concepts in a book, but you're saying no. It's so much more. It's an. It's an. It's exactly. When I remember, I was at Fabrengen with the Rebbe. So there are people who didn't get it, but Fabrengen with the Rebbe. If you ask 10 people, they would tell you 10 different answers, what inspired them. One person may just be sitting with Chassidim, you know, united and singing. Another person said L'chaim. Another person, a thought that they heard. A person, another person felt the warmth of the Rebbe. I mean, a Fabrengen is a very multidimensional experience that touches all of us, should touch all of us. I want to add one more thing, Ellie, especially, I don't know how much time we have, but I wanted to say this. Let's talk about mental health. Again, mental health, of course, is a sensitive topic. And, so, and, and I don't think just learning chassidus can always solve all mental health issues. There are issues that are clinical and there are, that, that are diagno, diagnosed, whether it's bipolar or schizophrenia or, or borderline or uh, other forms of personality challenges, chemical imbalances. I think chassidus can say, play a major role, but it's not alone. Sometimes you need, so you need those practitioners and professionals. Just want to qualify. But I do want to say something that I think psychology can learn a lot from Chassidus based on what I said earlier, that that link between the conscious and the superconscious. You know, there's a line they say, there's a very thin line between madness and genius. Yeah. Um, so in a way, when a person is dealing with chemical imbalances, and you'll see some of them are geniuses, but the problem is that they don't have balance. They, they don't have, they don't, are not able to be organized. In a way, if you allow the superconscious energy to just flow into your consciousness without filters or regulators, that without a faucet, what would happen? It would drown you, it would overwhelm you. That's called madness. That's in some ways a chemical imbalance that there's too much energy, too much superconscious entering the system. On the other hand, if you have very little, so then you have a more limited flow. That's why it's critical to understand mental challenges and mental health, mental disorders or other issues like that in this context, that it's not always about someone, something's the matter with someone. It could very well be that their energy is so powerful their containers can't contain it. This is a concept in Chassidus. I, I, have, to find, I have to find where I heard this. I think it was on a podcast, but it was someone um, talking about uh, like a, a mode of healing, I forget exactly the, the mode of healing, but a mode of healing that can treat many issues. And someone asked, I think it was a person on the podcast said, well, how can one mode treat so many levels of healing? So he said, I'll explain to you why. He said, the way I look at it is that there's a spectrum of issues. And it's very similar to what you're saying. So I have to find it. I'll, I'll share it with you if I can see where I saw it. But I don't want to screw it up, but it's along these lines. It's a spectrum of issues. And they go from too much chaos to too much discipline, right? Like some, something along those. So for example, someone who's OCD, it's not much different than someone who's schizophrenic in the sense that they're out of center. So if I can bring someone back into center, yeah, one is chaotic and one is, um, and, and one is like very harsh discipline, 
but it's bringing back into bringing back into this into the center. So instead of looking at issues as depression, anxiety, and borderline, is so many different issues with so many different healing modalities, which traditionally the way therapy looks at it, he was saying, hey, there could be one mode of healing that's all about bringing someone back to the center because going too far to discipline creates one set of issues, going too far to chaos creates a different set of issues. And if I have something that can help someone center yeah, it, similar to what you're saying. Yeah, there's, uh, I'll use Hasidic terminology. Toyo and Tikkun is Toyo is, the energies are too powerful for the containers. So they can even shatter. That's like a breakdown. And you have also the concept of Rotze and Shuv. Rotze being tension and Shuv being resolution. That the perfect balance, like a cardiogram, is that you need to have a certain measure of restlessness. That's what a pulse is about. A flat line is not very right. good. And at the same time, you can't have too much restlessness. That anxiety can turn into anxiety and worse. And at the same time, you need resolution. You need a constant measure of a little angst to keep you going and then resolving it. It's a constant dance that's not too blissful, animal bliss, not one extreme, or complete anxiety. You need the balance of like a flickering flame. It reaches upward, but then it's drawn back to the wick. Okay, a we... type of balance. And when that balance is out of whack, what, one way or the other is going to create some type of uh, imbalance. Now, some of us, is results from chemical imbalances. Sometimes it can be from trauma that we discussed. The trauma that right. causes a disruption in the system. We, we clearly have an expert uh, on here because someone is a message. Another way of framing this is disconnection from reality. So either non-reality, psychosis or taihu, or ultra-reality, OCD or tikkun. Right, so for those. It would actually be interesting and I don't know, maybe uh, maybe this person is open to it because she seems to uh, have her pulse on these these issues. And it would be interesting to have a conversation. I'd love to facilitate that one kind of in furtherance of this conversation and connecting it to psychology. So you speaking from your expertise and the psychologist talking from theirs and me just kind of listening in uh, and hearing uh, how those dovetail. So I think it would be awesome. You gave me a lot to think about. I didn't, ex I, this conversation didn't go where I, I expected it to go to I me. Mean, it went exactly where I expected it, but not in the way that I expected it to get there. And you've definitely given me a reframe for what this is. And it's a shit. I don't, maybe I missed it. Like maybe it was there, there all along, but it's not a book. It's not a, it's like, you know, it's similar. It's Ellie, a, it's a, Ellie, you're a young man with a bright future ahead of you. One <laughs> day I have a beard like this. <laughs> I'll blame it on you. I'd love to get to uh, some of the questions because um, you'll have some. Sure. So, uh, one person said Psyched psychedelics and chassidus. So t t I, I think what Trip Simmons said is to reach the state of um, that one can reach through psychedelics with chassidus. So I don't think it's psychedelics and chassidus, it's psychedelics through chassidus. You know, I, I mean, I have I've given quite a few talks about these topics and people have said to me, how much acid have you dropped? <laughs> um, and I said, not, not at all. And, and they were shocked because they said, how could you talk about these states, higher states of consciousness and superconscious? Because they were not aware that people think the only way to go there is through psychedelics or through foreign substances. It's not correct. There are many ways to go there. And it's actually a, a validation of the truths of these ideas in Chassidus because other right. people through other methods have come to similar states. 
But, you know, Chassidus has it without any side effects. How do you like that? Right, no, no, no bad decision-making. Um, maybe this is a personal question, so you don't have to answer it. No, it definitely is. But if, if one was to um, observe you learning Chassidus, what would that look like? <laughs> I never observed myself. It's hard for me to say. Um, let, let me ask a question differently. If I was, if I was able, if I was observing you learning Gemara, re, reading a book, or it's purely intellectual, versus observing you reading a Maimar Chassidus, would I be able to notice the difference without seeing the book in front of you? It's an interesting question. I'll tell you something. Nowadays, when I learn Gemara, I learn it with through the lens of Hasidus. Okay. So, Gemara, <laughs> so, so you went the reverse. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'll tell you how it looks. I give a class every morning in Ayin Beis. It's a very deep Hasidic discourse. I think what you would see is a lot of passion. I'm very passionate about it. I'm very, I, I, I love it. It's like, it's like a labor of love in the sense where like every word, dissecting it and trying to understand the nuance, it just resonates with me. So I think what you'd see is like similar to maybe a violinist who's really immersed in playing violin and they're really into it. That would be my a, a comparison. Like really where you become one with what you're doing. It's not just you're reading a book or you're doing it. You become absorbed by it in the point where there's almost no difference between you and the, and the yeah, teachings. Yeah. And the, it's what it is. It's like love. It's like making love in a way. <laughs> I hear it. Cool. Good. Yeah. I thought I knew you, but this was uh, this was neat. Uh, we'll get we'll get through some of these uh, these questions. Um, I don't have an answer to this, but they're asking maybe you do are the traditional trauma modalities such as EMDR working on the level of the animal soul or on the level of the higher soul, or is it somehow both? How do we know which is being touched? That's a very good question. Generally speaking, the higher soul, the divine soul, is more immune to trauma than the animal soul is. So in a way, what happens when trauma happens is that the divine higher soul goes into hiding. It's like almost recedes into the background. And now the animal soul that has been traumatized takes over and you're trying to survive. So you do anything it takes. You'll, desperation, all kinds of methods that people use to try to survive. So generally the trauma for the animal soul, the divine soul is more the pain of not being able to be active in your life. And the trauma for the animal soul is the actual trauma that you're experiencing and everything you're doing around it. Healing would mean bringing back to the fore your divine soul, that deeper consciousness, higher super consciousness, and bring it back into the consciousness of your animal soul. That would be the goal. But that can take work because you need to both have the cooperation of the animal soul, which is driven more by emotions and immediate needs and whatever will make me comfortable now, and joining, and, and you can't ignore that, at the same time integrating it with your more transcendent soul that's seeking purpose, meaning, higher reality, virtue, giving, and so on. And that's the balance. Very many people who are traumatized are like drowning victims, and they just grab everything around them. They'll even dra dra drag down a lifeguard, someone's coming to save them. So you have to really know how to balance that that temptation with being act, able to access that more transcendent, powerful uh, resources of the divine soul that can really help you um, learn to swim again. Someone else has questions specifically directed at you. Rabbi Jacobson is about the modal. Is it about the modality, 
or is it about the therapeutic alliance? Do we need more sophisticated modalities or do we need more skilled Avis Yisrael? Skilled Avis Yisrael, you said? Yeah, like what is it that's more needed? Is it the, a better modality, people who are better at a specific modality, or is it the It's a very good Yisrael? question. I, I, think, I think it's both. There's no question that Avis Yisrael, which means love, care, humility. Unfortunately, many of our so-called mashpim or leaders are not, you don't trust them. They may know a lot, but they don't necessarily invoke trust and you don't feel that they, if sometimes it's ego or other things. So I think that goes a long way of having people who really, really care and put themselves aside for the good of another. But I cannot also dismiss the need for modalities. Modalities, because even when you have that in place, and it's a tremendous point because you have love and nurturing, but then you also have to have a methodology. You have to have like suggestions. So I really think it's both. I don't know if I put the emphasis one on the other. Obviously, number one is the single most important thing because without that, you can have all the modalities in the world. If you don't trust the person that's the practitioner or the therapist or the guide or the mashpia, it's not going to help you those modalities because there's, there's, no, there's no trusting environment. You know, um, a, a couple of years ago, I was working on this project, Mic Drop, right, where people were sharing their stories and things like that. And it uh, sort of a fair amount of controversy in the community. And a lot of people have different opinions, but one of the ones that struck me is, um, I mean, I heard it, I understood where it was coming from, but I felt like it was lacking a lot, was how are these people doing these things when they're not therapists, right? They need therapists. And I understood where the question was coming from, but it was also profoundly foolish because at the end of the day, you know, what a therapist is trained in a specific modality. A therapist is not trained on how to care for another person. And how to demonstrate love, compassion, and understanding. So you can have a therapist who is trained in behavioral psychology and EMDR therapy and a different breathwork therapy or some, some of the ones that take more schooling. But all humans have the capacity to be there for, for another person. And you know, when I saw that, when I when I saw people saying this and it kind of caught on, this was like one criticism. They're, they're not therapists. How can you have a room? of people sharing their private experiences that some of that could be traumatic without a therapist. And what do you think happens in recovery rooms every single day? Across the world, people are getting together with no therapists, no skilled professionals, no guide, just a bunch of wounded healers, so to speak, many of them without even the title healer. But we're all healing each other just as people who, who, um, who, who uh, understand. So I agree with you that it's definitely the first component um, I have not been trained in, in anything, but the amount of people that I've spoken to over the years, like at today, who are struggling with very deep trauma, um, suicidal ideation, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I think people could be, could, we, we don't need to be trained to be able to sit there and listen to another human being. Obviously, there are things that are above our head and you recommend to someone else and an expert in that in that place. But I think that there is no question that that ability to be able to sit and listen and hear and not get overwhelmed by another person's experiences and have compassion and love is not something that one needs um, healing for and is something that all of us have, uh, have, have access to. And I see it every day. I see it every day in the, um, in the meetings. But the more I hear you talk, all right, Jacobson, about what this looks like, the, the closest similarity I've seen is not actually, that again, it's not actually a modality. It's not. It's actually um, the 12 steps and what they've created there, which is a whole way of life 
So you'll hear people talking about business decisions and they'll say things like, yeah, it was a lot of money, but I, I know what happens to, you know, I, I know what happens to me when I'm not completely transparent or honest in a business dealing. I know what happens to my recovery and I know how it shakes. I feel I'm sensitive to it. So I, I walked away from the deal or I told them X, Y, and Z, you know, and I was talking to someone a few days ago who had an opportunity for, uh, I don't know, someone was helping him out with something. And the guy asked him like, what are the specific, like, can you give me a breakdown of the expenses? And he, he knew that if he gives breakdown and it didn't include any of his personal, it just included the organization, what he was for, it would have gone smooth. But the fact of the matter is that he needed to, li to live too. And he wrestled with the decision and he said, listen, it was a large sum of money in the hundreds of thousands of dollars. But he said that if I didn't, if I didn't tell him the truth, that a good percentage of the money was to cover my actual living expenses, that that wasn't covered yet by the organization, then I, my recovery would have been shattered. It wouldn't have, it wouldn't have worked for me. And I wrestled with the decision a little bit, but then he shared with the context of the meeting that, hey, that's, that's not, I, I can't be that and be here. And you see how recovery consistently with the people who are able, not everyone, but the people who are able to get sober, they find a way to apply the principles into many, many areas of their life and not strictly in, like Shabbos is not Shabbos. Shabbos is not, okay, it's from this hour and that hour. There's something that happens that then infuses quite literally the rest of the week, right? There's a, a demand. That's what, that's what I meant earlier by the statement that in some ways I found recovery more demanding than a religious way of life is, you know, the service aspect of recovery, which they push repeatedly, which in many ways, to be honest, has me here and has me doing these, these kind of things. It's, I know that that's the, in a lot of ways, the foundation of, of my hope of, of my sobriety. And when I do that, when I do this, that works better and they align quite well so uh well you what know, you're pushing for is a beautiful vision actually yeah yeah and when i hear of those chassidim that would sit under a talus for four or five hours on shabbos and daven i find that to be you know so touching because they were really real internal soul work you know i wouldn't call it necessarily recovery but they were as the expression goes that real tshuva is not on a sin, it's on ruach toshev elalekim asher nesana, the spirit of the human being yearning and longing and aching to connect to its divine source. And they would spend hours doing that. That's real, real work. It wasn't just knocking off a davening, a prayer in 20 minutes, or an hour or a half hour. That was internal work of a soul clinging and cleaving to its uh, maker. It's like I, real, I, real love, real love. I want to be clear. What you're describing is actually beyond recovery a little bit. I want to be clear. Yes. But the closest thing that I've seen to even like to put, to put it into this is the vision. Yeah. You talk about a flying ship, right? So what do we have a flying ship? Oh, we saw a bird go around. It's not the same as a flying ship, but it gives someone some idea. The closest thing that I've seen is not where I started off, where a, a therapy session. That's not what you're talking about. You're talking about something much, yeah, yeah. much bigger. Look, I think if we were able to give that to our family, children, students, it would be such preventive and preemptive medicine that a lot of healing would be avoided because when you originally initially have your soul being fed and nurtured properly, it is uh, the best uh, the offense, the defense is offense. Few more questions over here. What is the line between spiritual and medicinal work? In the past, people went to spiritual leaders, not doctors, to heal the mind. 
why do, why do we need to bring Hasidus to the practitioner's office rather than people bringing people closer to their spiritual practice? And how would something based on divinity or monotheistic faith be widely acceptable as a therapeutic practice to believers and non-believers? There's a lot of questions there, but... Well, before the battle of science and faith, science and religion, before the enlightenment that created an unfortunate split between the transcendent spiritual self and the so-called scientific medical self, that was exactly right. Healers understood healing in a holistic way, that the, a healthy soul in a healthy body. And healers saw them as connected, what they call today sometimes mind, body, um, what do they call it? Mind, body, soul healing. You know, in other words, it's all together. You can't just heal someone physically if you don't also heal them me mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. But due to the split that science has created, where science in many ways feels it's replaced faith, and many ways religion has betrayed its role by overstepping its boundaries and becoming corrupt and bureaucracy, so we have all suffered that today medicine has become compartmentalized. This doctor here and that one there. The truth is what we are looking for, the future of medicine, is a fully holistic integrated system that combines the best of physical and emotional and psychological and intellectual and spiritual healing. And they all come together because a human being needs that all. It's not just enough to perform heart surgery or to perform other forms of or medications that help somebody. You also have to deal with their mood. If a person is very down, is pessimistic about their future, they could, they could technically heal them, but their spirit will kill them. So healing, we know, understand today more and more requires it all. And I actually wrote a few, when I started My Life Citizen Supplied, I did a lot of research on this. I wrote a few articles about how healing has evolved and how we need to bring it back to a, a, a combination of spiritual, psychological, and physical healing. Because at the end of the day, you're not made up of two parts. You're a human being that has both a soul and a body. And healing requires both ends to it. You can look it up if you go to MeaningfulLife.com. There's a few articles I wrote about psychology and faith and religion. Not just send, if you go to MeaningfulLife.com or send us an email or just contact us, we'll, we can send you a link if you can't find it. A book that um, uh, made a strong impact on me by Gabor Mate, it's uh, When the Body Says No. Um, and he's a, he's a doctor who was trained in Western medicine who eventually got into uh, palliative care later in life for treating people, basically just uh, managing their pain. There was nothing to do with them. And then from there, he went to treating people with addiction. And that's when he saw the connection between the two, that the addiction was there to almost do what he was doing in palliative care, which is just manage the pain someone was experiencing. And it changed his framework of um, dealing with addicts. One of his questions, he said, I never asked my, one of my patients, his addict patients, why the addiction? I ask him why the pain? Because I assume as soon as they walk into me suffering, struggling with an addiction, is that there's pain. And he said 100%, I mean, incredible statistics he talks about. And he has a beautiful book called In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts, uh, where he talks about his, the people he worked with and their individual stories. He said 100% of the women who were very severe drug addicts, 100%, it's a staggering statistic, 
were sexually abused. And he said over 90% of the men were. He's talking about the very, very hardcore drug addicts, the people who, um, in order to wean them off method, uh, heroin, they're putting them on methadone. You're not talking about you know, people homeless and stuff like that. That's who he was treating. And eventually he wrote a book on the connection between uh, the body and mind. And he spends a lot of time on things like uh, ALS and the emotional states that feed into that and breast cancer. It's really, really fascinating. It's an uncomfortable book in a lot of ways because it almost puts responsibility on the person experiencing some of these things. It's like, hey, there's some emotional stuff, but it also, it's empowering in the sense that if there's some truth to some of this, that uh, healing the mind can heal the body too, in, in some cases. But I think uh, the Fritz Krever says that, right? A big, a small hole in the body is a big hole in the spirit or something. Yeah. Yeah. So there's definitely, um, there's definitely a connection. And I can they, tell you and... for myself that I had, um, I was incredibly sensitive to like different foods and cheeses and stuff like that and stomach pain all the time early on in uh, my healing process. And I don't have that anymore. It's something that if I, I need to go to a doctor this for it. For sure, just, this, the, the body-soul connection, the body-soul connection, we have only know the tip of the iceberg, we know very little about, is a very deep connection. This is Sarna has the whole thing about back pain all being connected to anxiety. You know, the body and the soul work together. When the soul is, is lacking something, it can have very deep impact on a body. Now, obviously, there are bodily things you can do, but you really need to work both of them together. It was always known as such. Would anybody, like, you know, for example, if something's not working well, you need to treat both the, 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 body, the parts and also the spirit of it. That's how it is. Right. Right. And it's not to discount the, right, that's often the way people hear it, and I, you qualified it earlier. It's not to discount the need to go to someone to, to stitch the arm or to heal the actual underlying issue, of but course. you do both. You right. Do both. Yeah. How about shamanic journeying as a healing modality? We need to develop a type of Jewish shamanic healing, drumming or song to a soul and Jew, a call to Jewish ancestors in the spiritual realm to assist in healing. Okay. Sh shamanic behavior in general is not exactly a Jewish thing. So I wouldn't use that word, but if you talk about like primal elements, like for example, like you said, drumming or other things that are like the primal voices within us, there are Jewish methods to do that as well. I just would not use shamanic because that already goes into, um, is it, uh, you know, is it something that is not what the what, what Torah forbids? Because you're going a little into the world of the, of the occult or black magic or witchcraft or stuff like that. But um, but the idea of, of uh, like breath, for example, the shofar is one of the most natural instruments. All it is is breath. It's a, it's a air instrument without any. So there are, and, and the shofar, Hasidus explains, is the guttural and the primal voice of the soul without any ornaments. Just the draw, like when you do ah, like a tkia, it's just a plain sound. And the same with other sounds. So there's much that we can explore in Jewish traditions that would go into that category. Fascinating. Someone asked if you can please explain how learning can rewire the brain and davening realign the emotions. It all depends how you learn and how you daven. Let's start with learning. You know, um, let's, let's take a, a, a case scenario, a case study. A person is very down and is always thinking how the worst things could happen. You know, the pessimistic, paranoid, etc. 
So I began learning with this person. I said, let's learn about the neshama. Now, you can imagine a lot of resistance. Everything we learned, the guy kept telling me, oh, I'll never be there. I don't feel that way. I said, stop with your commentary. Let's just learn. And my goal was to immerse him into an alternative narrative. That's what learning really does. It offers you an alternative narrative to the narrative of your life. The question is, well, how resistant are you going to be? Sometimes we're so stuck in our narrative, we can't hear something else. So it's really about fresh air, opening the mind. So even talking about something like erang self-lifting out symptom, divine energy pre-symptom, getting into the details, but it's of a different type of reality, a divine reality that's not part of this world. So if you oh, just open yourself up to another story, it's like, you know, sometimes people read a story, I'll say Lahavdil. They read a fantasy about, uh, I don't know, you know, something about a fantasy world just makes you feel good, even though it's escapism. So I don't want to compare it exactly, because learning chassidus is not exactly that. But it's also the idea of opening up another narrative in your life. As far as emotional conditioning, what do you feel? Our emotions are usually trapped in our impulses. The things that right now either frighten you or attract you. And it's very subjective because once you're attracted to something, nothing can work. It says, Tfil is Avedi Shebelev, service of the heart. So the first step in davening is to try to speak to your soul. Listen to your soul. Speak to your soul. Emote. In Tanya, it talks about that you have to have Rachmanus in chapter 46. Rachmanus on your soul. Have compassion for yourself. Your soul is such a beautiful force. It's come into a gullus, into a very displaced state in this world where it sees a lot of corruption and duplicity and hostility and lying and all that this world is about. It's good to have compassion for your own soul. So that's the beginning of an emotional experience. It's just like when you love someone and you see they're in pain, feel for them. So it gets you out of your emotional, subjective, selfish state, self-interest, and you're focusing on something that's more than just your immediate, it's more your deeper soul or other things that are around you. It could also be the compassion for another person. The main thing is to get stop focusing on self, 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 on me, me, me. So these are just a few words about understanding how to recondition the mind and how to recondition the heart, the emotions. I can uh, touch on that for a second. So one of my, um, I know steps are favorite, but from my experience, so... Like my experience with Gemara, I guess, translated to the way I um, got into the steps. And I assume that whoever wrote it was very specific about every word. Didn't it just say it randomly? So when one's going through the steps, there's like interesting uses of language in certain times. So for example, oftentimes you just see, uh, we made a decision to do X. We, we um, made, made, made a decision, made a searching and fearless moral inventory, admitted to ourselves, right? There's like, Standard word, but then there's one step. It's a second step, which in some ways is the first step of healing. Because the first step is admitting to have a problem. So the second step is kind of the first step of healing. And it reads, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity, right? Which when you go through it, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity is, is one has to start having hope, right? Because how, what are my obstacles to believing that I can be healed, essentially? Maybe I lost hope. Maybe I lost self-confidence. Maybe I lost. But it doesn't say we believed. We believed we could be restored to sanity. It doesn't say that word. It says came to believe. What is came to believe? 
that expression to me, I've heard some people say is you want to come to believe. How do you, first you came, you came to a meeting, then you came to, you came to your senses and then you came to believe, right? You came to believe in yourself. I've heard that explanation as well. But this one is it came to believe is very specific language that it's experiential. It's, I, I, I came to appreciate the taste of beer. What does that mean? I didn't read it in a book. I didn't have it one time. I slowly over time developed and I came to, I came to find that. And when I'm sponsoring people, when I'm working with them, I'll often say, find those little things, like little tiny things that um, uh, maybe it's a phone call you got from someone when you least expected it. Maybe it's the way you bumped into this room. Maybe it's something you heard in a meeting that was the perfect, uh, the perfect thing you needed to hear. Who, who knows what it is, right? But these little slight things that make you ask the question of what if, what if maybe there's some sort of guide? What if maybe I'm not as bad as I, I thought I was? What if maybe there's some, some hope for me? And those little cracks in the armor, armor eventually get to, I came to believe that I could, I could get to that. And I think with the learning, it's very, um, it's very similar. It's those, when someone is in anxiety, when someone is fear, they're quite literally meditating on a negative experience. I mean, that's, that's what they're doing. They're in deep meditation on uh, this catastrophic event that's going to happen. So if I go into deep meditation onto a positive and I keep drilling that or a thought, and I, I keep repeating that, my sponsor has taught me that invariably someone struggling with addiction, if I'm struggling or someone else, someone further along in the program, one of their first three steps have a, uh, have a, have a problem in it. I'm not going to go into all the steps right now, but what are the three steps? The three steps are thoughts, they're ideas. They're not, nothing practically. It's not, it's not even EMDR. It's not, it's just a thought, but one of those beliefs are starting to crack. In a nutshell, one is, one is the belief of admitting a problem. The second is I, I have hope. And the three is a firm decision to change it. Those are the three steps. So if someone has a problem, he's taught me to always listen to where is that crack? And what does that mean? That the learning either it didn't never permeated fully or the learning permeated, but now it's starting to evaporate a little bit. It needs to be kind of relearned, but I've seen it practically. And I guess it's maybe it's unfortunate that I always need to use recovery or therapy in order to apply a Hasidic concept, but that's my life experience. That's the way I've, uh, I've, I've arrived at it. It's perfectly good. It's perfectly fine because in a way, it's revealing the divine of Hasidus in other areas of life and seeing it through different lenses, which is great. This is how we learn. It would be to me, it's just like an, if, if a, a scientist or, a, uh, or an astronomer or a mathematician, or for that matter, anyone in their profession finds the godliness in their profession, that's like behold rachecha de'eyu, in all your ways, you know God. Beautiful. You find God through these, the methods that you've experienced. You're finding God everywhere. Right. Beautiful. Uh, we'll take a couple more questions. A close relative has gone through sexual abuse. No amount of therapy and no amount of Yom Kippur's or learning my marm have healed her. She still suffers PTSD. Is there anything practical Rabbi Simon can offer? Though I've been advocating and saying that Chassidus has answers, I did not negate the need to use every possible method out there, every professional. I don't know the person's situation. My questions that I have is this uh, relative of yours, is she seeing a professional? Is she, uh, does she have someone she trusts? Is she working? It doesn't have to be someone that actually knows Hasidus even, even on a basic level. I would say if there is someone that's 
dealing with her and helping her to some extent, then you can perhaps suggest something from Hasidus that can help. But the first thing is, is she under the right care? If she's not, you have to find for her, you have to find her a professional that is experienced with dealing with PTSD and dealing with trauma, sexual trauma. I don't know the age of this person. I don't know what the family unit is like. There's a lot to ask before me giving any advice, like anything, if you come to a doctor, the doctor wants to see the patient and wants to know everything about the patient. So it's very hard for me to answer this without knowing all these details. If you feel that you want my opinion and want to call me and give me, fill me in, by all means. And the question is also, what is your role? Uh, you know, do you just care and you're, and you're uh, in pain? Are you helping? Are you someone that can help? Does she listen to you? So there's so much to be, I have more questions than answers, to be honest. The first thing in all these situations, you need a diagnosis, which means you need a clear picture of what's going on. Then you can suggest interventions. I'm not going to suggest intervention out of the blue without understanding all of that. And that being said, by all means, anything healthy you can introduce into her life, whether it's loving friends, whether it's involvement in good projects that gives her a form of satisfaction and contentment, whether she's in a healthy environment, is she out of the line of fire? Is she hopefully not in a place where she still could be abused or hurt? All this is all part of what needs to be done. But a full, more, de more detailed suggestions for intervention, I would need to hear a lot more details. Obviously, without specifics, it's uh, very difficult to, um, to say anything. Read. There, are, um, there are a couple of things I would say. Number one is, right, you have, the, there's, with sexual abuse, there could often be something physical that's going on. I mean, you mentioned PTSD. There's something physical, and that needs to be treated, whatever that is. You know, I didn't experience this with certain people, for example, to by that have been have experienced pleasure during their abuse. And that's a very difficult um, experience to undergo experience. Other things, curiosity, intrigue, which in itself had to be separated from the abuse. But sometimes when someone feels pleasure and that's a very physical thing, so that takes a modality with um, all its own, the physical part of it. But independent of that, the uniformly sexual abuse has probably the primary damage is it causes people to believe a lie about themselves and a lie about the world. And almost everyone I talk to about sexual abuse, I get to this point at some time in the conversation, so I feel comfortable sharing it, is I'm going to want, when I'm, when I'm speaking to someone who's been through sexual abuse, and this is part of my healing, is what lie did I believe about myself? Or what lie did I believe about the world? So as an example, I believed I was weak. I believed I was disgusting. These were two primary beliefs that I took on deep to the core of my being. And those are very difficult beliefs to shake. But once I realized that they're lies, they're simply lies. I, they're not actual true. They're not act, actually true about me. I felt weak because I was overpowered physically by someone else. I felt disgusting because I had an experience that made me feel disgusting. But being able to recognize them and see them as a lie was extremely important to me. I'm not saying that everyone has the same, comes to the same beliefs, but there are uniformly people who are sexually abused independent of some of the other physical things that go on. And sometimes the trauma's quite literally stuck in their body. So I'm separating that because that has to be dealt with independently, but the beliefs that one takes up on about themselves, which are lies and about the world, right? The world is a dangerous place. People are going to take advantage of me. If um, any love is really just an excuse. Any expression of love is really just an excuse to 
to, to hurt me. Some of those are also lies about the world that we have, and those have to be pieced through. But my message always to people is that it's something possible to heal from because a lot of people feel like sexual abuse is not. And I feel like I feel for my sexual abuse and I know many people who feel the same way, not that it's easy, it's deep, intense work, but I've got to the point where I would say very comfortably that were I given the choice to be sexually abused and not to be sexually abused, I would choose to be sexually abused. And what I mean by that is, I believe there's a director and a conductor to the world and he chooses certain people to go through certain experiences to be the people they need to be, do the things they need to do. And I believe that that's a place, I've seen many other people get to that place where they're able to see the way the abuse impacted them, put enough of those matters to best, not to bed, not put 100% of them, it's not, not the same person afterwards, but um, it becoming overall an asset and not a liability. And that's the message that I wanna share is one, I mean, it's been a theme kind of throughout this is one of deep hope for this person and for whoever else has gone through this, that it's 100% possible to heal with deep work and shattering some of the lies we believe about ourselves and the world. Let me see if there's any other questions that I think we should touch on. Someone asked over here, I need serious help and advice about a suicidal person close to me. Can you help? Joseph Katz. Oh, sorry. I shouldn't have uh, mentioned him. I need serious help and advice about a suicidal person close to me. Can you help? For that, you need to call someone. If you want to call me, feel free. You can call Ellie. Anyone you feel you trust. It's, I don't think we can just give advice just like that here. You agree, Ellie? I mean, that needs a personal call yeah. to understand what the situation. You know, when you're dealing with something like that, it's, you know, so it oftentimes can be so time sensitive that it's, you, it's important that to get ahead of it not, immediately and get someone who's... Right. Don't, don't, remain, don't remain passive. Immediately contact someone that can be helpful, that's a professional or an expert. And uh, there are people out there. There are also good... Uh, helplines they can call anonymously, confidentially. Do you know any uh, suicide hotlines that people can call, Ellie? Uh, there is a um, woman, Leigh Hershkovic Lafa. I think I'm pronouncing, pronouncing the name wrong. Um, I've been to one of her workshops. I believe it's called Safe Talk. Safe Talk certified. I, I remember. I, I actually gave a few uh, numbers out. I just don't remember them right now offhand. Certain websites that are very good hotlines and uh, or call someone you know and trust. Yeah. Yeah. But by all means, if you're, if you're on this um, webinar, then you have a way of contacting me. You can reach out to me and I can put you in touch with um, this person who, this is what she does. She, she teaches workshops on how to deal with people in immediate distress. This is exactly what her, uh, I've been to one of her, one of her, workshops and I understand that she's very good at what she does and this is the conversation she's steeped in so I definitely would want to pass it on to someone wants to know if your brother's with Robbie Y.Y. Jacobson that's my brother yes uh, someone asked a question where I'm in AA for 34 years I suffer I suffer terribly from abandonment started from my parents and now it is from my both children I feel I am defective forever and yes I'm in therapy and spiritual okay so is the therapy working great then I hope it's working but I mean, obviously not if they suffer terribly from abandonment and uh, feeling defective forever. I mean, this is an example of what I meant by lies we believe about ourselves. And it's not just recognizing it's a lie and then it goes away like that because they become... Well, well, well my experience tells me that these type of questions that are being asked now have to be addressed one-on-one -on -one in a personal way. I mean, just to, uh, just to share platitudes or general statements, you need to speak to someone. 100%. 
And if the therapist isn't working, then find someone else. If you feel you want to reach out to me, feel free to do that. The key is that you have to speak to someone. It's hard to, to, to give advice. That's going to be very inadequate, anything that we'll say here. You know, we could say a few points, but you're dealing with deep issues, deep-rooted issues that need to be addressed in a serious way, you know, and need to know all the factors involved. If you have family that are support, you have a spouse that is a support to you, these things are critical. But over here, I mean, like I'm reading this and I'm like someone who's been in AA for 34 years and still struggling with this. You know, I think it's one of the, what it speaks to for me is the, the shortcomings of any one, one modality. There's no one solution. You know, the 12 steps is amazing and we spoke highly of it, but it doesn't deal with trauma. It doesn't address it. It doesn't, it doesn't right. pretend to, and it needs to be, um, supplemented with with a lot of other things um i i guess okay. for all of this you know uh, for those obviously if someone's on this webinar they can reach me or reach um rabbi jacobson and some of these conversations obviously if you had in person but i do also like to say they came out in public and there could be a um a message for someone who's not asking the question that they can hear and the uh, who said it that like sharing a struggle with like sharing a struggle with someone right like it reduces the uh, the weight significantly I, I think it was in Hayyamiyam or something I saw it I don't remember exactly but, it's uh, based on a verse it says adam if a person is concerned or anxious about something uh, and their heart is anxious they should share it with someone else or they should distract themselves from it. There's two interpretations. I like to say the uh, three most difficult words in the English language are, uh, I need help. Okay. Was, was the hardest question for me to ask, and it's often the hardest, but there are, there are many people who are, who are willing to, and oftentimes we feel that's so defective that someone's not going to care for us when we reach out for help. So that's something that no one can do for the person other than the person themselves is to reach out and uh, ask for help. After many of these uh, webinars, I get people um, message me anonymously. So I, uh, several weeks, I'll just say, sorry. So I had this kind of conversation maybe eight or 10 months ago. And shortly after that, I got an email from someone with, I can tell that it was a, uh, a, um, an email made specifically for emailing me. He didn't want to give me his name. And went back and forth, even had a couple of conversations. And about three weeks ago, he emailed me from his real email address. Like he continued a conversation from his real email address. And I, to me, it was a sign of major, major healing and major shift. Like here, someone stepping into light and saying, I need help and I have this problem. But it often doesn't start there. And it often takes an anonymous question or anonymous conversation and over a different name. And whatever someone needs to do for themselves, that's something no one else can do is to uh, uh, ask for help themselves. Rabbi Jacobson, I wanna thank you for this uh, conversation. I very much enjoyed it. It gave me a lot to, uh, to, to think about. Like I said, again, seeing, hearing the word chassidus, I'll never hear the word the same way. I always heard it as a, um, as a, uh, a concept, right? A book, chassidus is a book. And you reframed it as, as an experience. We're talking about a multi-dimensional, um, 
experience that one can step into. There's many, many different aspects. The analogy you gave of being in a Fabrengen and one is hearing a concept and one is feeling the, the, the camaraderie and another is feeling, uh, <laughs> feeling the Smirnoff. But there's, right, there, people are connecting on a bunch of different levels, I think is a, um, a, an appropriate example of what, uh, what we're talking about um, for this and permeating many other aspects of that. So it gave me a, a window more into your world, your work, I understand better why you do what you do, how it all kind of dovetails. And I appreciated uh, this conversation. I'm sure many others did as well. And I thank people for the for joining. I know it's been a couple of hours. Also for participating, um, a tremendous amount of questions and personal questions. So I hope that uh, we're able to do justice to this important topic in only two and a half hours. Thank you all. Thank you, Gunnar Jacobson. Please everyone have a beautiful night. And uh, Thank you, Ali. It was great being session. here with you. It was great being here with you, Ellie. And uh, the goal, of course, is to ignite the soul and spirit within each of us and how we can each help each other and never give up. There's always more than you can imagine. We are, we are filled with so much potential that we don't even, are not even aware of. That would be my bottom line message to all of you. And thank you again, Ellie, for having me. We'll do more of this. I feel more energized, invigorated, and... Uh... We'll care, and we'll create even more after this. So hopefully Ooh. others who are uh, listening to do as well. Uh, yeah, we'll do more. I, I, I already want to do that one, the one with um, hearing you speak alongside. Yeah, I'm coming from my experience. You know, in years I'm steeped in this conversation and I'm passionate about it. And I've read many books, but someone who's, this is what they do as a profession, as a profession. There was someone who was chiming in uh, multiple times with uh, important insights. And uh, I... Um, Maybe they, they would be an ideal candidate for a, a joint conversation. Robert Jacobson, your website is MeaningfulLife.com, right? I'll post it. Correct. In the, MeaningfulLife.com, correct. I'll post it here so everyone can see it. And if anyone needs to get a hold of, needs to or wants to get a hold of Robert Jacobson or see more of his work, it's MeaningfulLife.com. is a book, Towards a Meaningful Life. And I imagine you have a contact form and everything else. Everything is there. So you can subscribe. I address many of these type of topics. And thank you again, Ellie, for having me. Thank you. Have a great night, everybody. Well, there you have it. My conversation with Rabbi Simon Jacobson. But I really shouldn't say there you have it because I feel strongly that this conversation is the beginning of something larger and uh, the beginning of not only more conversations, but possibly more than that. We'll see where it eventually evolves into. But I hope to have Rabbi Simon Jacobson back on here in freely short order, uh, both him and possibly a psychologist or um, an expert in that space. So we can listen to them, compare notes, and see if the two of them can complement each other in the way Rabbi Simon Jacobson mentioned during this podcast. I look forward to talking to you guys more and sharing another episode of the In Search of More podcast. Have an awesome day.